0: Bad and Carlson, Carlson, Carlson. Carlson. Hoi, huh, here comes Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson. Ingen faktisk ingen Carlson. annan kan spela så bra som me. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores. Carlson, yeah, Carlson, baddest. That just happened! Oh my gosh, so many trades in just the last 10 minutes, like Brian and I have been switching up this whole show. Sorry, okay. Thank you everybody for tuning in to another episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast, the best fantasy hockey podcast in the world, hosted by two guys who at one point owned Eric Carlson in their keeper pools. I'm your host, Elon Dubrowski. with me, as always, Brian Calm.
1: Hello everyone, hello Elon. You know, we had the whole show ready to go. We had all our ducks in a row. Everything was prepped. And then, well, you said 10 minutes. That's how it's felt. We've had like 45 minutes to prepare and scramble and get ready. Here we are with mostly formed thoughts on everything that's happened this week and today in the last hour.
0: Yeah, we've got two big trades to discuss. One where they might still be on the phone, (laughs) so we'll get to that in a second. But we're definitely going to cover this Bishop to LA trade, which everyone is just scratching their heads right now going, why? What? Just why? Why did this trade happen? But okay, before we get into that, let's take a second to mention that we are presented by the Best Fantasy Hockey website out there, dauberhockey.com. You know that if it's not there already, it's going to be there really soon. Full trade analyses, impacts, fancy impacts, who gets hurt, who gets helped, Everything you need to know about a trade that happens, and you know the trade deadline, Brian, the actual deadline is I think Wednesday, so there's going to be a lot going down, and you're going to want to keep appraised of it all and all the impacts of DabberHockey.com.
1: Yeah, I already consulted them for a trade that we're going to talk about that did not happen just moments before we started recording tonight's episode, and they have it, like you said, Elon ranked very well. They tell you who a trade helps in order and who a trade hurts in order from each team they consider all the angles just like we're going to try to do but definitely round out your full trade impact knowledge with the articles over at dauberhockey.com
0: yeah and plus obviously you've still got your starting goalies your line combinations all the regular tools plus definitely around trade deadline time all the content so check it out brian let's get going it just got announced literally an hour ago we recorded 8 p.m est on sunday and we heard that ben bishop Has been traded to the Kings for Peter Budai and Eric Cernak. So forget about Cernak. Forget about picks. I think there's apparently a pick upgrade and a 20% salary retention. Blah, blah, blah. Basically, for fantasy purposes, we've got Bishop for Budai. So many questions. First of all, this is like one trade. We've got four goalies affected here in terms of fantasy value. We're going to have to talk about, quick, Bishop, Budai, and Vasilevsky. Who benefits? Who gets hurt? We already had a discussion prepped right to talk about quick's outjury because quick just came back from his groin injury that kept him out for most of the season now obviously the whole context has changed and we've tried like you said to scramble and change what we were going to say about the whole thing but first maybe before we get into all these players can we just have a quick discussion brian of like what's the motivation here why would the king's do this? Why would Tampa Bay do this? Like from Tampa Bay's perspective, I guess it makes sense to me just in that, you know, they have these two goalies. They were probably going to lose Bishop to expansion or he was going to become a free agent, though I'd imagine they would have wanted more like picks from him or something. Anyway, and then from the Kings perspective, it even puzzles me more because they already have Jonathan Quick as their starting goalie. And they had Peter Budai who did a great job while Quick was injured. I assume Quick and Budai would be a great tandem to go with into the playoffs. Now they trade Budai for Ben Bishop, who's been up and down all year, I just don't see why they would do it. Like, maybe is Quick still hurt? Here's some conspiracy theories for you. Like, maybe Quick tweaked something in that last game or in a practice, or maybe... You know I don't even know. Brian, like, illuminate me a little bit here because I'm struggling to understand why this trade happened. Yeah,
1: a lot of us are. Don't know, unless LA has a plan to collect all of last year's Vesna finalists, in which case they're two-thirds of the way through, or they're on another plan to collect all of the USA goalies from the World Cup, in which case they're also two-thirds of the way through towards that goal. So you wonder if Holtby or Schneider might be the next goalie they acquire, but I guess that's a pretty far-fetched scenario. Uh, Seriously though, that's like as good as it gets for theories of why each team did this. Let's start with LA, who acquires Bishop and makes you wonder if they know something about Jonathan Quick's health that we don't. I was actually looking for a picture of Quick the other day to post in our Facebook group for the Game Night thread. And every image had him like doing the splits. And that, you know, made me remember that Jonathan Quick likes to do these sort of acrobatic big things with his body. And so maybe they want some better insurance with Ben Bishop. I've also seen theories thrown around that maybe they're preventing another Western team from grabbing Bishop, which seems to make about as much sense. If Quick is healthy and they have no concerns about his health, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. It's a very expensive tandem now. It's a very average tandem. Yes, Ben Bishop isn't going to get paid by the Kings past this year. So the cost doesn't matter so much. It's just a weird, a weird tandem because you don't see one better than the other, or one who's had a great season to stand on. You have Bishop who just started getting good, Quick, who just returned. And of course, like let's not forget, LA just sent the guy Packing, who saved their entire season in Peter Budai. Now, Budai. 9.17 on the year, but that's friendly to what his numbers have been like over the last little while. 2.6 and 0 with an 8.84 save percentage over his last eight games, just a 9.13 since December 31st. So this isn't a new thing. Like his best games of the season definitely came at the front end of it, and he's been struggling lately. And then you look at Bishop, who's actually worse. He's six points worse on the year, 9.11, 4 and 0 lately, though, in his last four starts with a 9.64 save percentage. And over his last 16, He's actually picked up his game quite well, 9-3-3 with a 9.23 save percentage. So the Kings definitely improved their goaltending tandem, but the question is why. Uh, Tampa also gave them a better pick, like they got a draft pick upgrade in the deal, L.A. did, and Tampa's also retaining salary. So Tampa did a lot to get Ben Bishop off their hands. My immediate thought was one of these teams has something else cooking, there's some ulterior motive to this trade, and we'll see if another domino falls. In the meantime, but for now, for L.A., I just don't get it unless they want a little better insurance going into the playoffs. They want to prevent an opponent from getting there or they want to prevent an opponent from beefing up their own goaltending or that they're concerned about Jonathan Quick's health. Those are my three theories that are ongoing
0: okay so that's enough of us sort of doing general nhl talk let's get into the fantasy impacts now let's start with ben bishop okay so like you said he's finally started to be doing well like actually i also had prepped already yesterday for our show to talk about how ben bishop has finally picked up his game and it looks like maybe he's taking the job back from vasilevsky all that goes out the window now but yeah he's had four straight really great games he hasn't let in more than two goals in all of february though that's only five games played but a 938 save percentage over the month looks like Tampa Bay was transitioning back to Bishop playing two games out of every three, which is what they were doing for much of the start of the year. So then I'd imagine this is like not good news for Bishop owners, right? Because they go from a goalie who was looking like he was going to play around 66% of the games to a guy who maybe will play 50%. Or less. Like, I can't imagine Jonathan Quick becomes a straight up backup. So maybe if it's a 50 50 thing, Bishop loses a lot of games. Of course, on the other side, maybe Bishop's now playing for a better defensive team and it might help his rate stats. But overall, I'd say this is bad news for Ben Bishop, unless really you only care about like goals against average.
1: Yeah, I think it's bad news for Ben Bishop. I saw Dabber hockey writer Steve Laidlaw mention just moments after the trade went down. He thinks that Bishop starts half the games down the stretch. At least that was his knee jerk reaction. I'm not sure I can get with that just yet, although it makes sense. Like, if they're concerned about Quick getting re-injured, they rest him more down the stretch instead of him going from 0 to 100 and starting, you know, 15 of the last 20 games. Maybe he starts 10 or 12 of the last 20 games to go. So, yeah, probably does dent Bishop's value some because he seemed to be emerging as the two-out-of-every-three-game starter in Tampa, and now he's in a place where I doubt he gets an opportunity to see more than half, if that.
0: Right, okay, and then, Jonathan, Quick... So he's finally back from his groin injury, like I said. He had a great return, a 4-1 win versus Anaheim. 32 saves for nine 70 save percentage, for what it's worth. I saw a recent note on Roto World, like before this trade, Daryl Sutter said the veteran goaltender's workload will be managed, according to LA Kings Insider. So clearly, I was just thinking, oh, good news for Budai owners. He doesn't totally lose all of his value, even though Quick is back. Maybe he'll be able to play like 30, 40% of the games. But maybe that helps explain what's going on. They don't want to work Quick too hard. Though I thought Budai, you know, would be fine. But whatever, the de- is done keep in mind quick has only been a 918 save percentage goalie over the past two seasons which is fine like that's league average but it's not like he's been completely sensational so i was going to suggest before the trade that now might be a good time to sell high on jonathan quick because you know he was coming back he was a starter obviously lots of hype for him he had this good game now i don't know if you can sell high anymore because he's part of this tandem now I think that his value also gets hurt. Like I would have assumed at worst, he would play like 60, 70% of the games with Budai as his backup. Now also, like they have to play Bishop. They didn't get him just to sit there. So I feel like they're going to be close to 50-50. So also not great news for Jonathan Quick, unless maybe the rest that he'll get from having fewer games will help his rate stats. But I don't know. Overall, I think it's kind of like bad news for both of the new LA goalies in terms of their fantasy value, just because they're both going to get fewer games than we would have expected before this trade.
1: Yeah, totally agree with you there. Your usual reminder is here that Jonathan Quick is not a great goaltender. He is average, maybe marginally better than average, but I would not go any further than that. So I guess if he falters, like I'm curious to see how short a leash he's on now, if he is healthy and everything's okay, and he turns in a couple poor starts, like LA isn't a playoff race right now. Do they have the patience to let him sort it out? Or do they really trust Ben Bishop to just step in that net and take over?
0: By the way, we should mention, Jade is asking in the chat room here, aren't they still pushing for a playoff spot or are they out? Obviously talking about the Kings. Currently, the Kings are three points back in the West from the Wild Card, So it's not like they're in the playoffs for sure. They're pushing. So I guess right now is their playoffs. So just assume that they made this trade to help them in the playoffs. But by the, in the playoffs, I mean basically right now because they need to win games moving forward as if they were in the playoffs. Okay, so then we have the two Tampa Bay goalies. We have Vasilevsky and Budai, two guys who were looking like backups yesterday, now are going to, I guess, be battling for who's going to be the starter. Maybe they'll also be a 50-50 tandem. We've got a rookie. We've got a veteran. Vasilevsky has a 909 save percentage on the season. Not very good. And he's been even worse lately, like only a 900 goalie, I think, in February. He showed he clearly can't yet handle the starter's job when Bishop was injured. Vasilevsky was just terrible. He only did better, I guess, once Bishop was coming back. Budai, on the other hand, 9.17 save percentage on the year, like you said, Brian. So he's been a lot better than Vasilevsky, which makes me think that Budai should be the starter. But at the same time, Tampa's pretty far out of the playoff race themselves. They're seven points back of the wild card. So maybe they're deciding, all right, we're done. We're thinking about the future now, in which case might as well give Vasilevsky the reins, see what he can do, and then they have a decent backup in Budai if he falters so much that they need to play someone else. Either way, to me, it kind of looks like an improvement for both of them, right? Like for Bishop and Quick, I feel like both of their fantasy value goes down as they're going to play less games. But for Vasilevsky and Budai, I think both of their value goes up because Budai, I think, has a much better chance of playing if he's backing up Vasilevskiy than he would if he was backing up Quick. And Vasilevskiy is now a starting goalie until he blows it, if and when.
1: Yeah, this is a real turn of event for Quick owners who were so pumped about him returning finally after waiting all season. And for Budai owners who were probably really down in the dumps feeling like they had a worthless asset that Quick was going to run the table the rest of the season, but I wouldn't see any time. Now he moves to Tampa where he's playing. I imagine he's behind Vasilevsky in the pecking order, and Vasilevsky is going to get the opportunity to play maybe a lot, or maybe they won't have patience because they too are in a desperate playoff race right now. They're quite far out. They're as far out as Buffalo is. They have 62 points. They are seven behind Toronto for the last wild card spot with only one game in hand. So again, another team you wonder, how long a leash are they going to give Vasilevsky before they turn to Budai? I think also what this does for Budai is it gives him some value perhaps for next year. It sounds like he could get a look as their backup goalie, which makes sense, right? If you have Vasilevsky, a young goalie, to have some veteran presence, a guy who can be like an average NHL backup goalie, that seems like a decent thing to do, especially with the experience Budai has accrued over the year. But back to this year, it certainly helps Budai's value and it helps Vasilevsky's value. The question is, can Vasilevsky run with what he's given now? And he hasn't been able to all season long, even when the opportunities came. You wonder now with nobody breathing down his neck, he'll feel like he's able to. I
0: can't wait to find out. Yeah, it's usually been whenever Bishop gets injured, we say, rush, go grab Vasilevsky. And now when Bishop is traded, we're like, "Uh, I don't know, maybe I'm not so sure he'll be able to do well. So, you know, buy at your own risk at this point it's funny because Brian you were just messaging me earlier today we're in a pool together against each other and my brother's also in this pool and he is a Budai owner and you messaged saying ooh should I send a trade offer to your brother to rip him off now that he has lost you know starting goalie now that Quick was back and you have Quick so I assume you were going to try to trade him Quick and get a huge haul in return now my brother sort of gets an extra breath because Budai maybe will play more A. It's it's very interesting to think of the implications and like what you were going to do we were going to come on today we were going to talk all about what to do if you're a Quick owner now that he's back and what to do if you're a Budai owner and ah it all goes out the window
1: yeah just to be clear elon you were the one who mentioned ripping off the Budai owner in the doc that we had prepped in our show notes and then i asked using your words if i should rip off that's generally how i don't go into trades but i was definitely tantalized by the idea
0: yeah anyway if (laughs) ifs and buts you know the saying let's move on we'll obviously have to check back in on this trade in a week or two and see how everyone's doing all those four goalies Let's go to another trade, which is not like official yet. So maybe I should give myself an optional edit point here for if it turns out it doesn't go through by the time the show is out. So here, let's cut here. Now I'm going to say, actually, it turned out the trade didn't happen. So let's move on. Okay, now end that cut. Back to the talk of saying that Martin Hansel has apparently been traded to Minnesota. They're apparently still on the phone. I don't know, Brian, it was just really funny when Brian was telling me actually the trade might not be official because they haven't ended the phone call yet. And I'm wondering, how do they people know about this trade then? Is he texting while he's on the phone telling his friends how he's about to make a trade? Because Arizona's made a really good trade here. I would be texting my friends. They just traded Martin Hansel, who's going to be an unrestricted free agent at the end of the year. And Arizona's not in the playoffs. And it's looking like they're going to be getting a first round pick a second pick and a conditional pick from the Minnesota wild. So Minnesota is clearly all in and Arizona is like looking good for the future. If they could do something good with these picks, but anyways, the fancy impact here, obviously we have to look at Martin Hansel. It's so crazy with the minnesota wild right now if you look at my kakupful division the ottawa second tier division of the keeping carlson ultimate Patriot Fantrax league there was only one player in the minnesota top nine that was not owned by a team and that was eric halla and i think now we can make that zero we've got the lions in their last game they were eric stahl niederreiter and Coyle, koivu grandland and zucker and then parisi halla and Pominville so i think Swap out Haula, put in Hansel. He fits right nicely there with Parisi in Pommonville for like the old-timers line. And there you go. All of a sudden, Martin Hansel slots in really well. They have a top nine of all fantasy-relevant players and guys you want to have, especially for next week where Minnesota plays four games. I believe Minnesota plays four games every other week for the rest of the fantasy playoffs, at least in the couple, maybe not the final week of the season. So, okay. As far as if this is good or bad for Martin Hansel, he has 26 points in 51 games overall on the year, which is a 42-point pace, which isn't very good. But he has six goals and one assist in his last eight games. So I wonder which is the real Hansel or which is the Hansel that we'll be seeing over in Minnesota. Like, at first I was thinking, oh, he loses top line, top power play spot. But if he's swapping Verbata and Domi for Parisi in Pominville as his linemates, and then pommonville like been red hot lately. Seems like not too much of a downgrade. And also Minnesota scores more goals. I guess we'll have to see if Hansel could get onto a power play unit. Like he'd have to bump someone. Hala isn't there as easy pickings. He's going to have to bump one of these other more strong forwards. Overall, Brian, what do you think? Is this good news or bad news for Hansel owners? People who grabbed him at one point, should they now be thinking, ah, whatever, time to drop him? Or do you get excited about him if he's in free agency because he's on the Minnesota Wild somewhere in their top nine?
1: Well, I think it was a popular first thought that The Wild already have Eric Stahl and Mikko Koivu down the middle. So maybe Martin Hansel is in the bottom six, except like you're saying with the top nine, Elon Minnesota doesn't have a bottom six. They have that top nine. You name any guy in that top nine, and I'm going to name them all right now. You stop me when you hear the name of somebody who has been without a hot streak at some point this season, without favorable fantasy production, someone without fancy relevance for the majority of the season rider, Stahl, Coyle, Granlin, Koivu, Zucker, Parisi, Palmenville. Well, in the ninth piece, you'll, you can stop me here, is Eric Haula.
0: I know, I just said that. I just said all of that, Brian.
1: Well, no, but I, okay, so I'm, I guess <laughs> I'm just trying to emphasize the point that now you slide Martin Hansel in there, and I guess it's a good situation for him. Like, it's not top line, top power play, like he was seeing in Arizona. He's not going to see top power play. But you wonder if, like, 13 or 14 minutes tonight in Minnesota – is better than 17 or 18 minutes a night in Arizona. I'm also excited for the prospects here of Zach Parisi and Jason Pominville I think Hansel is an upgrade on Eric Halla for them, so they're not sort of stuck on the bottom third of that top nine. Now it's more evenly rounded, and the Wild just have a really formidable depth chart, especially down the middle now with Stahl, Koivu, and Hansel. Like, don't get me wrong. Hansel, the price was steep. They traded what will end up being, you know, a late first round pick like when the last few of the round and a second round pick which has even less of a chance of panning out but if that sets the price for future acquisitions like any team that was hoping to land Matt Duchesne is probably really angry about how much the Wild paid the Coyotes for Martin Hansel, who is a half point per game player he's never scored more than 16 goals in a year don't expect him to suddenly explode and blossom into anything more than a 50 point player but at least he'll be surrounded with some more talent less minutes But maybe that'll all even out to him being able to continue doing essentially what he's been doing during his time in Arizona.
0: You know, one thing I've been enjoying about Hansel, and he's a guy I picked up for my cup full of playoffs, is that he's been getting a lot of blocks lately, which was something I wasn't expecting. So I have a feeling I'm going to be losing out on those. I don't think Minnesota is going to put their forwards in a position to have to block a bunch of shots like Arizona does.
1: Yeah, and speaking of Arizona, Elon, let's go back there for a minute. Now their top line is without a centerman. They have Verbata and Domi floating around. With, I guess uh, it could be good news for Christian Dvorak, who's been on a pretty good scoring pace recently. Not totally evenly scoring, but I think I was looking earlier today, something like nine points in his last 12. We mentioned him on the show recently too. So he's someone to watch that could get more ice time and better deployment. But it is worse news for Verbata and Domi and whoever else is playing around that top line, top power play in Arizona because it just got
0: a lot thinner. Yeah, I mean, unless, of course, Verbata, he could still get traded himself. And Arizona could just get a bunch more picks. So maybe it's not so bad for him yet. We'll have to wait and see. But yeah, you'd assume it's worse. But at the same time, Hansel was injured for a while, though I believe that's around the time when Verbata was slumping. So maybe there's something to it. Domi was also injured for a while. It's hard to say with these Arizona guys. I feel like for all of them, for Domi and for Verbata... Domi's like a guy that could be really good but also could definitely not have value this year and you're looking to the future and now with these picks they've gotten hopefully Arizona will become a really strong team and you mentioned Kristen Dvorak and also there's Dylan Strom who's going to come up next year so I think in a dynasty league this is probably good news for Domi maybe not for this year and then verbata you have him until he slows down and then the plan is to drop him that's what you should have been doing anyways. Okay, Brian, I feel like at this point we can now finally get to the content that we actually prepared for the show. I was going to start the show before an hour ago talking about how Patrick Eves has been traded to the Anaheim Ducks for a pick. This feels like years ago that this has happened. Eves has already actually played a game with Anaheim. But okay, let's look into this trade now. Eves is having a career year, right? He has 37 points in 59 games, or at least that's what he had before the trade. 21 of those 37 points have been goals. So a 21 goal year, he's destroyed his career high of 32 points and there's still like 20 games left in the season for him. He also has 154 shots so far, which is a career high. So overall, just Patrick Eves has been a completely different player this year. He had runs like this in previous seasons and maybe if you would look at point paces, maybe he was similar last year, like he had a lot of injury trouble, but this year he hasn't gotten injured. He's had a good amount of time with Ben and Sagan and he's been doing well but obviously that now changes he goes to the Anaheim Ducks and the big question is is he going to be able to keep this up as a member of the Anaheim Ducks and my initial thought would be probably not since he's losing his cushy top power play spot with Ben and Sagan and time with one of them or both of them at even strength so probably I'm thinking bad news for Patrick Eves though okay let's look what happened yesterday he played his first game with the Ducks no points but he had five shots which is really good in the 4-1 loss versus Jonathan Quick and the LA Kings And the lines going into the game were Cogliano, Kessler, and Silverberg. That never changes. Then Getzlaff, Ritchie, and Kasha. And then Eves, Raquel, and Perry. So Patrick Eves was playing with Ricard Raquel and Corey Perry. Not so bad, right? Decent line mates. But it looks like halfway through, things got switched up, I guess, because they were losing. And Eves ended up playing with Getzlaff and Nick Ritchie for a bit. And Eves was also on power play, too, with Raquel and Silverberg and Bieksa and Lindholm. So overall, you know, he loses... Ben or Sagan at even strength, but he gains a Getzlaff or a Perry. So, not so, so bad. I'm curious to know, Brian, what do you expect from Eves moving forward? Is it a big difference that he's with Getzlaff or Perry as opposed to Ben or Sagan? He's currently on a 51 point pace. Do you think he can keep that up, or do you think he's going to go down to being more like a 40 point guy moving forward?
1: I don't think this helps him a whole lot, but we should give him credit, as you were at the outset of this little chat about the trade, for what he's done this year. He co led the stars and goals before being traded tied. With Tyler Sagan, if you think Tyler Sagan scored a lot of goals, Patrick Eaves has scored just as many. The question is, why has this season been so remarkable for Patrick Eaves? The first very obvious answer is that he's been healthy. He's played 60 games this year already, and that means he's already played more games this season than he had in any of the previous five years. He's missed 115 games just over the last three years, several more over the course of his career. I think he's only played more than 70 twice. In his 12 years in the NHL. But in addition to spending less time on the IR, he's also spending less time on the bench during the games that he is healthy enough to dress for. As a 32 year old in his 12th year in the NHL, he's averaging three minutes more of ice time than he ever has before. This is a guy who spent his career playing between 11 and 13 minutes a night until this year, when now he's suddenly averaging over 16 and a half minutes. And this trend of increased ice time also carried through to the power play. He has 16 power play points this year, 11 power play goals on 39 shots, which is a near 30% shooting percentage. But that's a shooting percentage he's maintained as the net front guy in Dallas for the last three years. But he is getting more minutes with the man advantage, and he's taking more shots in those minutes, and it's all working out very well. So to circle back to what he is now that he's a duck, so he's a 50-point pace forward Playing nearly 17 minutes a night and cashing him big time on the top power play unit, that was actually sustainable, I felt, as long as Ben and Sagan were buzzing around in the picture in various ways. I don't know that he can stay that relevant with the ducks. There's definitely room for him alongside Perry and or Getzlaff, but that duo is not Jamie Ben and Tyler Sagan. And that is who Eves has collected the majority of his points with this year. So I'd expect a downtick in points now that he's with the Ducks. Even if he does stick on top unit in Anaheim and play with one of their big names, I think 50-plus would be a really tall order. I'm expecting they'll still give him plenty of ice time. I don't see that going down much. But I think you should adjust your expectations to be closer to 45 than to 50.
0: Yeah, I agree. And okay, so here's a fun question for you, Brian. Like, which forward on the Ducks, not named, I guess, Kessler, Perry, Getzlaff, or Silverberg, would you want at this point if you could get any other one? Like, Raquel is someone who we basically called a snoozer last week, so of course he had a two-goal game. But still, those are his only points in his last seven. He's still someone I'm not overly excited about at this point uh nick richie i feel like could be a dark horse with four points in his last four games and he's playing with ryan gets especially if your league counts hits he hasn't getting so so many hits but still you know he has the upside to give you that so like raquel richie Eves, or you know someone else who you're gonna blow my mind with like who would you want if you could have one other guy on anaheim as a forward
1: so like you said Eves did have five shots in his debut he still played more than 16 minutes with a good chunk of power play time I don't know if you're able to rely on guys like Raquel or Richie for a whole lot. So if Eves can keep putting up like near three shots a game as he was in Dallas, and if he keeps getting good looks on the power play, I may still prefer him of the bunch. Raquel definitely has the highest upside, and Richie is the dark horse, especially if you're in a hits league. But I think Richie may be susceptible to being bumped from his current duties with the acquisition of Eves. So who do I want? I'd probably roll the dice and go with Raquel, even though Eve's, I was saying, offers more certain value. I feel like it still might not be enough for your fantasy team, so I would probably go big or go home with Raquel, which still wouldn't be that big.
0: Yeah, okay, sounds good. And okay, one more piece of Ducks news before we go look at the fantasy impact here in Dallas. So John Gibson is on the IR with a lower body injury, but it looks like he's eligible to play in the Ducks next game on Friday after their bye week, even though he's on IR. So I wouldn't be too worried. I think he was almost going to play in their last game, and they didn't. So actually, this is kind of like a nice opportunity to stash him while the Ducks aren't playing. I'm really enjoying it. I have Gibson in the couple. It sucked to lose him for a couple of games, but I'm very happy to know that at least during the Ducks bye week, they don't play again, like I said, till next Friday. I can just put him in my IR and have an extra skater or another goalie in his place, and hopefully he'll play and he'll be fine. Though maybe it's a nice opportunity for you to buy low from a concerned owner that doesn't really know that Gibson is going to be coming back, so he doesn't pay too much attention. I don't know if this is like mean to be giving advice of how to take advantage of weak owners, but you know he's on the IR, and I think overall he's having a really good season, right? And Jonathan Bernier, by the way, is pretty badly. Like, he has done badly in the two games he's played in Gibson's absence. And Gibson, yeah, so he has a 9.22 save percentage on the year now, and a 9.40 save percentage over his last two months. So that's 22 games. So he had that really weak start, and ever since then has been just a really you <laughs> tremendous phenomenal goalie of course still kind of a small sample size but brian i remember you said early on in the season that you kind of see gibson as just an average nhl goalie i'm curious if you still feel that way at this point like i think going into the season even you said gibson might not be as good as people think so i guess i'm just curious for an update on how you feel about john gibson now that he's been having these good games i know you're really good at looking beyond just a couple of good months and looking at the big picture so where do you see gibson right now like there's a bunch of these young goalies that people think as like really valuable in keeper leagues you know the matt murray's and the vasilev's Hellebuck, you see, Saros is in the conversation. Where does John Gibson fit with those guys now at this point?
1: So Gibson is now above 920 over his last 88 games played through this season and the last one. So yeah, I can upgrade him to possibly a little above average. I just think people were really overrating him. Like as he started his career and was battling it out with Anderson, people had him as this blue chip goaltending prospect who was going to be like in the mid, maybe even high 920s. He's still not going to get there, but it would be nice if he is a touch above average as he has shown himself to be so far. So good for him. As for all the guys you mentioned, uh, I think I'd prefer them all to Gibson. Murray Vasilevsky and Saros are all on better teams. Murray's already the number one goalie. Vasilevsky, especially after today, seems like he's pretty darn close to it, if not already. Saros could be there in about a year, so I guess it depends if you have patience for that to happen. But once Saros is starting for the Predators, I'd prefer him over Gibson. Hellebuck is the one who's not on a better team, but I still think he's the better goaltending prospect above John Gibson. So for that reason, I think I'm going to put Gibson at the bottom of that list in the short term. He's probably better than Saros and Hellebuck, but if I'm looking like three or four years out, I think I would prefer both Hellebuck and Saros to him.
0: Man, what does Gibson have to do? I guess we'll check back in another month or two and see if he can change your mind, if he keeps this pace up. Well, this just goes to show how we have such an exciting new crop of
1: goalies to look forward to where John Gibson isn't first, may not be second, may not be third, but it's great to have this whole new stable of goalies to look forward to and track through their careers and get excited that there might be some really high quality number ones coming because it feels like there's been a dearth of them through this crazy goaltending year.
0: I mean, maybe my question should have been, what does Vasilevsky have to do? And what does Gibson have to do for you to put Gibson ahead of Vasilevsky? Vasilevsky's been having a horrible season and Gibson has been really good. But okay, we'll check in on both of them in a little bit. I want to get to the fantasy impact of this Eaves trade on the Dallas side. And I guess you guys can tell probably that this was expected to be how we were going to open the show because we have so much to talk about this Patrick Eves trade, which now seems like just a throwaway trade compared to what else has gone on. But yeah, we have Eves moving away from the Stars And that really affects their lines because he was a guy on a good line and on the top power play. So if we look at the lines they've been rolling for the last two games, their first two eavesless games on Friday versus Arizona and then today versus Boston, they've been going Sagan, Sharp, and Roussel, Ben, Eakin, and Brett Ritchie, and then Faxa, Korpakovsky, and Spezza. And then the top power play surprisingly has been Ben, Hoodler, Sagan, Esa Lindell. So a lot of interesting notes here. First of all, notice that Spezza and Klingberg have both been off the top power play. They're guys that have been there all year long. Sharp, Lindell, and Hoodler take their spots along with Eve's spot. So three guys that you have to all of a sudden add to your watch list or at least to your radar. That's Patrick Sharp, Essa Lindell, and Yuri Hoodler. Then we've got Brett Ritchie, Cody Eakin, Roussel, Patrick Sharp, all getting prime spots with Ben and Sagan at even strength. So I feel like all six of these guys I've mentioned, or six or seven, like are worth at least... Looking at or talking about, like first on the downside, right? Spezza, he had a power play assist versus Arizona, but no shots. And then just two shots and no points today versus Boston. I'm really starting, Brian, to be over Jason Spezza, especially if he's now off the top power play and on what looks like the third line with Korpakovsky and Faxa. I don't really see a reason to hold on to Spezza unless you're in a really deep league. Then you have Klingberg, who's also bumped from the top power play, but he's really responded. He had a power play goal versus Arizona, I guess on the one that Spezza assisted on on the second power play unit then he had a golden assist today versus boston both at even strength so maybe klingberg is trying to earn his way back to that top power play and essa lindell the guy who bumped klingberg no power play points yet in these two games he had two assists versus arizona though at even strength nothing today i'd be curious to ask you like is essa lindell now a must add now that he's on power play one with ben and sagan and all those guys usually my policy is always at a top power play defenseman especially one playing with ben and sagan But seems kind of weird, like maybe Klingberg will just take the job back. So maybe I'll stop there before I just keep naming more players. But I'd be curious to know what you think about Spezza and Klingberg and then Essa Lindell.
1: Yeah, so Spezza has definitely been fairly disappointing over the last little while. We talked about him last week, so I'm not going to get too far into what we can expect from him. I'm still hopeful he can bounce back. But like you said, he's not really getting the deployment that would lend itself to being an opportunity, to enabling him to really jump back in the scene. Plus for any stars, by the way, if you're thinking of adding them right away, hold off because Tuesday's a really busy day and I assume all the best stars are taken and then they don't play again until I think it's Thursday, Elon, if you have the schedule in front of you. Anyway, you can probably take your time in adding them and see how everybody does Tuesday and see if John Klingberg is back on that top unit. Esselindell being on that top unit is definitely weird. He has 11 points in 53 games this year. And I haven't done the exact math, but I do believe that his power play time on ice from the last seven games, if you combine all that, it seems to be more than he spent on the power play just about all season long. A lot of zero minute outings for him. Sometimes, you know, he's seen a couple minutes here or there, but for the most part, not a lot. So I don't think that they're turning to him to be their next top power play guy. It is interesting though. I wonder like if Patrick Eves moving had anything to do with this. I can't really make a connection between the two things. So yeah, I don't think you need to rush to grab Essa Lindell. Although I guess while he's on that top power play unit, if you have nothing else to lose by adding him, then go ahead and do it. But in the meantime, don't get too down about John Klingberg. He's going to be okay.
0: I think so. I hope so. I mean, it's surprising. Klingberg had finally started getting better and doing well after a really slow start in middle of his fantasy season. And now all of a sudden he's bumped from the top power play. But like I said, he's actually doing really well, even though he's not on that top unit. Okay, then some other guys I had mentioned. So Patrick Sharp, he had an assist today. He has two assists in his last three games. The shots have kept coming lately, usually two to four shots most games for Patrick Sharp. I think he's a sneaky ad at this point. If he was dropped back when we called him a snoozer like months ago, at this point now, he's playing with Sagan at even strength and he's on the top power play. Like, why not add Patrick Sharp? I'd probably want him over Spezza at this point. Call me crazy, but especially if your league counts shots, which most leagues do, and then power play points, I don't see why you don't take Patrick Sharp and drop Jason Spezza. And then also you got Yuri Hoodler. Somehow on the top power play, he's pulling a Sam Gagne. He's playing on the fourth line at even strength, but enjoying prime power play time. He actually had a power play goal and an assist today and one assist versus Arizona. So I wonder if this could maybe last I don't know. I still wouldn't buy in on Yuri Hoodler. I'm very surprised that he's up there. But obviously, we saw a couple years ago he had that great year with Calgary. But I was ready to just forget about him completely. But now we've got to look at guys like Hoodler and Sharp and the others we've mentioned as potential guys to add. I definitely like Sharp, though. I think he's my favorite of all of these surprising new top power play guys on Dallas. He's the one I'd rush to add if he's available.
1: I agree. Elon, if I'm choosing one star who's not Ben or Sagan or Klingberg, I guess I'm going with Sharp. And then I'd probably still have, I, I want to say Spets over Hoodler, but yeah, he's worth watching for sure to see what happens. And, Elon, we should also talk about, like, with Eve's gone, there's an open spot in the top six. And that may be good news for Cody Eakin, who now doesn't have any of Colton Sevier or Patrick Eves to compete with for a top six spot. We know he's been in and out of that spot for the last couple of years. Antoine Roussel too, could get a little bump in fantasy value, especially if he is playing with Sagan and Sharp more often. He's seen some time with Sagan this year, but also a lot of time with the likes of Radic, Faxa and Brett Ritchie. So this is a definite upgrade. Uh, did you know, by the way, that Antoine Roussel might have had the quietest hat trick of the season last week? He had three goals on six shots against Tampa, but more than two shots in a game is not terribly common for him. Don't get too excited, but maybe keep an eye on if there is More opportunity for him now to play in the top
0: six with Eves out of the picture. So if a player gets a hat trick, but he's not on anyone's fantasy teams, did it really happen? It's a very philosophical question. Okay, so those are the trades. We still have injuries and outjuries and hot streaks and cold streaks. Big show today, I guess, when we had to add these two big news items right at the last minute. Before we get into all the rest, let's take a minute to thank our sponsor for this week's episode, SeatGeek. All of these players are changing teams, and you probably want to see them. Be the first to see a new player in his new jersey live by going to the game. And, you know, if you want to go to a game, you got to get a ticket. And why not just buy the ticket from the best ticket site out there, which is SeatGeek. They make it so easy to find tickets for all the games. You search for it, they're going to have tickets aggregated from a bunch of different sites. They'll sort them by value. So you'll even be able to see, oh, this ticket's more expensive, but it's a better value because it usually costs so much more. It's really handy to look at their sorting in that way you know, their tickets are backed by their 100% guarantee. They have a really nice, easy to use app. Really, it's a good site. Check it out. And especially if you've never used them before, you could get a special $20 rebate just because you're a listener of Keeping Carlson. All you have to do is download the app or go to the site, buy your ticket. And then in the promo code section, enter the promo code KEEPING, K-E-E-P-I-N-G. And then SeatGeek will mail you a $20 USA check as a thank you for making your first ticket purchase. So you could get this value. You could help Keeping Carlson. So be a geek, get a seat, check out SeatGeek. What's left for me to say?
1: I guess I'm on SeatGeek right now and the time it took you to see that spiel. I went on SeatGeek to see what it would cost to see Martin Hansel's hopeful first game in a Minnesota Wild jersey tomorrow. At the same time, you might also potentially see Ben Bishop's first game in an LA Kings jersey. LA visits Minnesota. Tickets are all there on SeatGeek. Like you said, Elon, rated by value the cheapest ticket. It's out there for 75 U.S. with fees. That's a real handy feature of SeatGeek. No guessing but what the fees will be anyway. So
0: there you go. There you have it. So easy. I guess the real cost is actually going to Minnesota or LA to go see this game. That should be a new feature, SeatGeek ads, like telling you ticket prices to go see the games, getting whole packages. How about that, SeatGeek? I'm giving you business ideas. What more do you want? Tweet at Keeping Carlson if you're SeatGeek and you like the ad that we just did. Okay, Brian, let's move on now to some more outjuries. We talked about Jonathan Quick coming back another anticipated outjury happened last week or i guess yesterday eric johnson finally returned to the avalanche he had been out for a while and perhaps his return was the spark the avs needed to get their first win in six games a 5-3 win over buffalo maybe the whole season will turn around now that eric johnson is back he had a good game he picked up an assist he had a shot three hits two blocks he only played 17 minutes and 34 seconds So obviously he's getting eased in a little bit. He's normally averaging close to 22 minutes a game. Johnson overall on the season, he's up to 12 points in 24 games, which is a very respectable 41 point pace, which is good for a defenseman. Definitely. I think he's worth adding if he's a free agent in your league and if your league counts hits and blocks. I guess the big question with Johnson coming back is does his return hurt or help Tyson Berry? Like it didn't hurt Tyson Berry yesterday as Berry scored a goal and got the top power play time in the game for a defenseman. Overall, Barry actually has the same point pace as Johnson with 26 points in 52 games, which is a lot lower than what people were expecting from him going into the year. And in league's the count plus minus hits and blocks. Barry has probably been like borderline worth owning because of this low offensive output and no help in peripherals as opposed to a guy like Eric Johnson, who helps you at least in the hits and blocks. We'll see what he could do in the plus minus. What do you think? At this point, is this good news for Barry, bad news for Barry? Are people dumb for even still having Barry, even though Colorado can't score goals and they're probably going to be trading away some pieces in the next couple of days? Well, that's the question.
1: Can the news get any worse for Barry owners than it has over the last while? Uh, I don't think it's any different for Tyson Barry. If we just look at how he's performed with Johnson in the lineup and without Johnson in the lineup this year, similar sample size of games and similar results. 12 points in 24 games with Johnson in the lineup, 14 points in 28 games without Johnson, so an identical point pace. He was minus 11 with Johnson, minus 16 without, 54 shots with Johnson, 79 shots without. So that's actually the biggest difference, is that he was averaging closer to three shots a game with Johnson out of the lineup and closer to two shots a game with Johnson in the lineup. So we'll see if that was a function of Johnson leaving the lineup or if it was just a function of Barry not really being able to get his game together early on in the season. And he also scored power play points at about the same rate with or without Johnson. Uh, His time on ice was similar, a lot of similarities. So I think the only key difference to watch might be to see if Tyson Barry is taking fewer shots. Now that Johnson's back, Uh, it's very exciting that Eric Johnson's back though. If anybody dropped him because like they had six injured guys and no room in their IR and they just thought they'd sneak him off into free agency and grab him later, you should try and beat them to the punch Like you said, Elon, he had a very good start to the season and his start made him like a top 20 defenseman in a lot of formats because of those hits and blocks. If those are both counted, you should absolutely have him rostered.
0: Yeah. And then since we're on Colorado, like I'm tempted to dive into the forwards, but I feel like someone's going to be getting traded and everything is going to be moot. So I'll just say a couple quick notes. We don't have to dig too much into them. Miko Rantanen had a stretch of goals in three straight games that ended a couple games ago, but then he picked up an assist in the last game, and he has four points in his last five, 16 shots in that span, so over three shots a game. So Miko Rantanen finally producing on a season that's been overall bad for most of the Colorado forwards. He's someone who's finally becoming worth rostering, so take a look and see if he's available in your free agency. I'd imagine his role just becomes even more prominent if Duchesne or Landeskog gets moved, right? He's already playing in the top six and on a good power play, but he'll definitely stay there, maybe, you know, get better line mates. Who knows, like, what would happen? But he's definitely a guy to watch. Regarding Duchesne and Landeskog, I guess you've got to hold on at this point. If you've held them this long, hold on a little longer. See if they get moved at the deadline. See who they go to. Landis broke a five-game pointless drought with two goals and assists yesterday. So that should hopefully tide his owners over long enough to wait and see what happens at the trade deadline if they were really close to dropping him. And Duchesne owners, I guess, just need to keep reminding themselves, this used to be a point-per-game guy. Duchesne used to be so good. Just try to remind yourself of that. And convince yourself to hold on. I was very close, Brian, to dropping him. As you know, if Chris Latang would have come back from injury yesterday, like it was announced he might, like it was a game time decision, if he would have come back, I might have just dropped Matt Duchesne in the cuckoo. I'm battling here for my life. I'm in a playoff matchup. That's a two week matchup, and we're just ending the first week. So, you know, every game counts. And Matt Duchesne has been doing so little. But at this point, I guess I'm going to try my best to hold on and see if he gets traded to a team that makes him good, though it's tough because when a player gets traded, you might lose a game just from the travel time. Like Martin Hansel was supposed to play. Today for Arizona, but he's not playing, obviously. And then Minnesota plays tomorrow. Is he going to make it? Maybe like Hansel owners just lose a game because of this trade. So it's tough. Maybe in hindsight, we shouldn't have planned our fantasy hockey playoffs to occur uh, around the trade deadline, but who knows?
1: Okay. Well, first, I'll say that I think you're only sad about the trade deadline thing because you might personally lose a game if Hansel doesn't get into the lineup tomorrow night for Minnesota. I know that's hard. But I also just want you to consider there's some other people affected, like Martin Hansel and his family. On to Matt Duchesne, who you Off. say he used to be a point-per-game guy.
0: You <laughs> knew he was getting traded. I guess Arizona is probably a nice place to live. Nice and temperate weather.
1: Is temperate the right word? I
0: don't know. It's hot there.
1: Okay, so Matt Duchesne, you said like he's a point-per-game guy or used to be. Yeah, it's true. For the minority of his career, he's been a point-per-game guy. I see him more as someone who slots in around 60 points, especially while he's with Colorado. Hopefully another team can unlock whatever potential lies within Matt Duchesne. I've given up on seeing it happen in Colorado since, I don't know, they had a point per game guy and they're like, ah, we're going to give you crummy deployment now and not the greatest opportunities and watch you not fulfill your potential. At least that's what I think. I think he can do better. Landis on the other hand, he's a guy who I wonder if he really overreached on his potential when he set the bar at 65 points in his third season in the league back in 2013-14. I think he might be closer to a 55-point player, but the fact of the matter is this season he's been a half-point-per-game guy, and I think he's going to remain that way for as long as he remains on this iteration of the Avs. The Colorado Avalanche are not good for anybody fantasy-wise.
0: Okay, yeah, let's leave it at that, since we're probably going to be talking about at least one of these players next week. Uh, another quick outjury to mention. We freaked out last week about all those Sens injuries. Mark Stone and Mike Coffin both playing today. So, you know, disregard sorry if we freaked you out too much okay let's go to injuries now another injury you don't really have to worry about is that Mitch Marner has been out of the Leafs lineup with an upper body injury for the last five games which has led to some interesting implications for the Leafs lineup a lot of shuffling around before we get to that you know first I'll mention Marner is probably going to be back next week so I just wanted to use this as a springboard to talk about the Leafs Marner's been having such a great season he has 48 points in 56 games which Brian that's a 70 point pace for Mitch Marner normally that would be enough for him to run away with the Calder Trophy like Nathan McKinnon won the Calder Trophy Easily with, I think, closer to a 60 or 65 point pace. But I wouldn't be surprised if Marner isn't even nominated this season. That's how crazy the rookies are. Obviously, Matthews and Line, a and maybe Marner could sneak in as the number three, but there's not the guy even on that team that could challenge the least just insane overall right so okay with marner out jvr and bozak have been pretty quiet probably not a coincidence that's the line they've been going marner jvr and bozak and they've all been clicking together so i wouldn't be too worried if you're a james and reams like owner because marner's gonna be back and you can sort of reset to whatever was happening before marner got injured one of the guys who really stepped up in marner's absence is a guy named josh levo who finally got into the lineup and had a stretch of one goal and seven assists and 18 shots in five games, which is insane. He was playing with Kadri and Komarov, who have both been on fire as well. In the last couple of games, Levo has quieted down with zero points and only two shots in those two games. And probably I wouldn't be too excited about him moving forward because once Marner comes back, I think he's going to get bumped. Normally, Nylander would have been the third on the Kadri and Komarov line, but I guess they had to shuffle everything. And so Nylander has been up with Matthews, who, by the way, is even... Hotter than all of the rest that I've been mentioning. And then Hyman. So it's been, uh, it's confusing keeping track of all these names. It's been Nylander, Matthews, and Hyman. And then JVR has been playing with Bozak and Connor Brown. And then Bozak got injured last game or he was ill. So a guy named Ben Smith took his place. But anyway, so first of all, Josh Levo since he's the one that's most likely to be in free agency is there any value in adding him at this point or do you think that once Marner comes back he goes back to like going in the press box and not even playing like if they go back with JVR Marner and Bozak and then Kadri Komarov and Nylander and then Matthews with Brown and Hyman that wouldn't really leave Levo with anywhere to play Unless you think maybe someone could get bumped. Maybe like a Brown or Hyman could get bumped off the Matthews line.
1: Those are the two most likely candidates, I suppose. But there is not a lot of room for Levo to find his place in the lineup. In fact, it took him a really long time to get this far. We were remiss not to mention him on last week's episode because he's on a huge high in a season where he'd been so down for so long. He was injured before the season. And then Mike Babcock called him out in the preseason saying he was pretty far from making the lineup. Uh, He was scratched for two weeks to start the year, then went down to the AHL on a conditioning stint, had no points in five games with the Marlies. Then he sat in the Leafs' press box for another month from November to December. Then he finally played 12 minutes in December, waited two and a half weeks more to play four minutes in his next game. And then a month after that, he played again on February 9th, and he's now played in nine straight contests. That sounds like a small feat to play nine straight, but it's a big deal after Levo played a total of five games in the AHL and 16 minutes in the NHL over four-plus months. His ice time is holding reasonably steady right now, and I like him for some depth contribution as long as he's playing with Kadri and Komarov, but I do fear that once Marner is back, he might not be long for a spot in the top nine, and in that case, it'll be back to the press box for him. As for Marner, by the way, before we get too far ahead of the other Leafs we're going to talk about, I just want to say, can I, like, even if I sort of semi-rescinded, my prediction out of fear. Can I still pat myself on the back for saying he could be the highest scoring Leafs rookie? Like I get that he's on pace to score just two fewer points in Austin Matthews over 82 games. I should admit at the same time that Austin Matthews is having a much better season than I gave him credit for in our preseason episodes. But Mitch Marner has been incredible. You can see him making a couple rookie mistakes from time to time, but you can also see him looking poised and confident enough with the puck to make some big and really creative plays. I'm sure we all saw that one where he like looped around the zone like Marion Hossa did with the Sens like 10 or 12 years ago before setting up a play that I think led to a goal. The goal wasn't even the important part. It was the journey, not the destination
0: for that play. So, Brian, I'd say, sure, you would be able to pat yourself on the back. I'd give you a pass on, you know, if Marner ends up with less points than Matthews just because he was injured for a few games. And if the point pace for Marner was higher, I'd say totally pat yourself on the back for making that call, except you totally rescinded it and you took it back after a while. So I don't think you get to hold on to that.
1: I didn't totally rescind it. I just I just felt like I put my neck really far out there for no reason. But I wish uh, I wish I stuck by it. Oh, well, lesson learned.
0: That's the thing with putting your neck out. You have to leave it out. Otherwise, it's it's not really anything. But okay, the Leafs, it's just insane, right? They currently have six players with at least seven points in their last seven games. That's insane, right? So Matthews, Levo, Jake Gardner, Kadri, Komarov, Nylander, all have been above a point per game in the last couple of weeks. It's just insane how many fantasy producers they have. They're like the Minnesota Wild, right? The Minnesota Wild of the Eastern Conference. It's hard to even like think of a question to ask you about all these Leafs. Like I feel like, yeah, you probably just kind of want them all. Like Komarov is obviously especially interesting with this production he's been having since he produces so many hits. And so if you're in a hits league and you could get like a point per game pace from him in short bursts, might as well grab Komarov. Here's my question, Brian. If I had to pick one, should people be picking Austin Matthews in the first round of their drafts next year? Let's say if it's a 14 team league, can he crack the top 14? Like in a one-year league... Is there much difference at this point between him and other guys who are normally picked in the first round, like say John Tavares, Pavelski, Giroux, Goudreau? Matthews now is 54 points in 61 games, which is a 73-point pace. And he had a slow stretch at the beginning of the year. I'm sure if you take out like the first couple of months, it would be above a point per game pace. Plus he has 217 shots in these 61 games, which is insane. Like, I'm curious to know, like, How many points do you think he's going to end up with this year? And then how many next year? Like, can he hit the 73 points this year? Do you think he can keep this pace up? And then is he going to be a point-per-game guy moving forward for, like, the rest of his career?
1: Austin Matthews is 19 years old. That's how I'm going to start it. He's only going to turn 20 in September of this year. And the reason I started by mentioning his age, like, we're all wowed. Like, wow, young rookie playing well. We've heard this story before. But not often do they play this well. Since 2005, only three players— younger than 20 years old have reached 70 points. Crosby did it twice as an 18 and 19 year old. Then Patrick Kane as a 19 year old. And then Steven Stamkos was the most recent player to accomplish the feat seven years ago. So it hasn't happened since then. And it's also just as uncommon, by the way, for a 20 year old player to get 70 points. So uh, Matthews really deserves some mad props for what he is accomplishing this year. As for next year, That's the question, right? Where do you draft him? Where can you value him? The sophomore slump thing scares me a bit, but I think he's going to be able to work through it for the most part. He's got a good shot of holding his own with any of those names you mentioned. The one thing that I wonder about in his numbers this year is his 87% IPP, which is either elite or it's a bit of a fluke, and he's gotten lucky to be in on so many goals while he's on the ice. From what I've seen and what I've read and what I know, I am ready to guess – that that 87% IPP is not a fluke that he can keep it up there. I'm ready to call him a 65 plus point guy going forward for sure with upside for 75. And I'm laughing because that really is unfairly conservative. Uh, You'll have no, yeah, you'll have no hope of drafting him if that's where you have him pegged since there are plenty of other people who see him as guaranteed 70 points with upside of like point per game. They'll pick him off the board. Way earlier than that, so first or second round. So I guess if you're comparing him, Elon, to those other elite guys you mentioned that go up in the top couple rounds already, I think it's to Matthews' benefit compared to them directly. Like we look at Tavares, Giroux, Gaudreau, they rarely have opponents keying in on any line but their own, whereas Matthews, the Leafs have a pretty evenly distributed top nine, and I think that's a bonus for him. So I'm gonna go ahead in this long convoluted way, first saying 65 points and then point per game. I'm gonna say he's. Guaranteed? Am um, I putting my neck out again? I'm going to say he's guaranteed
0: to get more than 70 points next year,
1: and I think he could crack 75.
0: Okay, I like that better. That 65 thing was like, yeah, I think that Connor McDavid is at least a 65 point guy. It's like, yeah, no shoot. Uh, how do you say that without swearing? I don't actually know the nice version of that saying. But okay. By the way, Brian, Dave in the chat room here was saying he surprised something as foolish as sophomore slump worries the fantasy hockey robot. You know, so my, I guess, defense for the sophomore slump, I guess, to me, at least in my head, I would say maybe other teams are getting to know the player. Like Austin Matthews was a mystery and coaches didn't know how to coach against him. But now, you know, they're going to figure out what he's been like and they'll have all summer to watch his game video. I don't know, Brian, do you have a defense to what Dave is saying? Maybe calling you being foolish for worrying about the sophomore slump.
1: Yeah, you know, I always thought it was a myth. And then, you know, I can't remember. It was an interview we did towards the start of this show where somebody I trusted who talked about how the sophomore slump they felt was a real thing because other teams have more time to prepare to defend this player in their second year in the league. Maybe they're coming in with a bit of overconfidence. They don't feel like they have to work as hard because they did it as a rookie. I don't think that's going to apply to Austin Matthews, but it is something that I, I think holds some weight in the sense that other teams have tape of this player. They have tape of him playing in the NHL. And yes, so they can better ready their team to play against them. But someone as good as Austin Matthews, I don't know if that's enough to stop him from getting to 70 points.
0: Right. I'm not too concerned about that myself, but I don't know. We'll see. It should be a lot of fun seeing all of these big stars on the Leafs. Maybe next year you could put your neck out and say that Marner will get more points than Matthews, and we could do this all over again the right way. Okay, another injured guy who should be back soon is Chris Letang. But I'm just saying this for completeness. Like I actually don't want to talk about Chris Letang and his injuries. It's ins- when I saw last week that Letang was injured and was going to miss a game. I just like I didn't even react. I was just like fine, go in my IR. I'll pick up Goligoski or whoever and just hope for the best. And Goligoski's actually been good, so it's like it's not even bothering me. Like I'm over getting bothered by Chris Letang getting injured. I've learned my lesson for drafting next year. Hopefully he'll be back. If not, okay, I'll hang on to Goligoski. Okay, Justin Schultz though he returned yesterday in the four to win over Philly after missing three games he was on the top power play of course but got zero points and only one shot I was saying Brian before when Letang was back that I was starting to think maybe you have to expect Schultz to slow down especially once he was losing that top power play time and he had started to slow down now obviously you want to hold on to him while Latang is injured we got an interesting question on the Facebook group though about Schultz versus Colton Pareko at this point and it really made me think because I feel like there's so many unknowns to consider if you're thinking of making that swap or making that trade Justin Schultz versus Colton Pareko so many unknowns right first of all you have the unknowns of Latang's health like is Latang going to be there that affects Schultz a lot in terms of if he's going to get on that top power play then you have Kevin Shattenkirk who might get traded and obviously that answer will come soon but obviously the person making the trade maybe wants to do it now before they find out because that's the thing they're rolling the dice so I'm curious to get your thoughts like I really struggled with that question to be honest like Pareko has been having a decent second season but not like overwhelming like not compared to the way people talk about him in our Patreon only facebook group he has 28 points in 60 games for a 38 point pace which is decent for a defenseman but not like insane not blowing anyone away 140 shots which is nice you know a little over two shots a game his numbers were looking better before but recently he only has two assists in his last eight games maybe if you had this conversation a couple weeks ago it'd go a bit differently i feel like now could be though a really good time to buy low on colton pareko in like a keeper league before kevin chancourt gets moved because i assume he gets on the top power play over pietrangelo right So if that happens, Pareko versus Schultz, I guess I'd be curious to know your thoughts overall. And then maybe like for all the different permutations, like if Letang is healthy and if he's not, then if Shattenkirk is traded and if he's not, who do you like better between those two guys?
1: I'm going to take Colton Pareko. I think it's a great time to get him. He's not the guy in St. Louis yet, but he's really making the most of the time that he does get still as he did in his rookie year. He has a 38 point pace in not the top spot, for scoring defensively on a team that has had their share of scoring issues outside of Vladimir Tarasenko. And that's impressive to be able to get to 38 points. Like I know it doesn't sound like a lot, but in his context, I think it's good and his value really gets a nice bump from his shot rates. He's top 10 amongst defensemen in even strength shot attempts per 60 minutes and his top 20 amongst defensemen in points and shots on goal per 60. He's also top 15 in power play points per 60. So when he does get those looks on the power play, he makes the most of them. I will assume that Latang comes back soon enough to negate Schultz's extra value and looking at both Pareko and Schultz as second fiddles on their own team. I prefer Pareko.
0: Yeah, I think that seems fair. Maybe we don't have to go over all four permutations. I guess we could just say we think Letang will come back for what that's worth. And then we think Shattenkirk should get moved. So it makes sense. And even if Shattenkirk doesn't get moved, Pareko still gives you those shots. Schultz was also taking a lot of shots. It's, tough. it's an interesting question. I mentioned Pietrangelo. He only has two assists in his last nine games, both coming in a game versus Montreal a couple of weeks ago. I still like him like as a really solid non-power play defenseman. I think it's pretty clear that Pareko takes the top power play spot if Shattenkirk moves. So is Petrangelo? I guess he just, his value stays the same, right? Like almost a lock for two th- or three blocks a game. Gets points usually, even though he's in a slump right now. Takes a decent amount of shots. I'd imagine some people are thinking of letting him go with this current cold streak, especially if blocks aren't counted. But he has 29 points in 59 games overall. So around that Colorado D.5 per game pace. I'm curious to know what you think about Petrangelo and if his value changes, if Shattenkirk gets moved or not.
1: I don't think so. I don't think he steps into a bigger role. I imagine that Pareco steps into Shattenkirk's spot and then Petrangelo keeps playing very capably in the support role where he picks up a decent amount of points which are bolstered by good peripheral value if your league counts those.
0: All right, so we're through the uh, injuries and outjuries section. Let's go to some hot streaks, Brian. I have a few names I'm curious to get your thoughts on. I want to start in Chicago. I actually feel really bad. I feel like we blew it last week by not mentioning Panic and Schmaltz. Like, they were already on hot streaks, and I had them in the list of guys to talk about. Then I sort of cut them at the last minute. I'm going to blame it on my traveling and just think, yeah, I'm sure it's not that important. But no, no, these guys are really good. Like, their line with Jonathan Taves has been on fire lately. Like, before today, Panic had 10 points in his last seven games and Schmaltz 9 points in his last seven games. And they're playing currently. And I saw that Jonathan Taves scored a goal assisted by Nick Schmaltz and Richard Panic. So the hits keep coming. Jonathan Taves, by the way, insane. He has already a goal and an assist today, a power play assist on a Patrick Kane goal. And he's like, On another level right now than all the other players we've been talking about, I think, even he's doing even better than Austin Matthews, if that's possible. He has 14 points in his last seven. That's before today in his two points. Obviously, the three-gold, two-assist game versus Minnesota helped. That and being on the top power play with Kane and Panarin is really great for him. He wasn't always on that top power play. So let's talk about him first. Brian, back on episode 133, when I brought up another Taves hot streak, you said, sell high. Now's the time. He's not better than a 60-point guy. Obviously, if people listened to you and sold him at that point, they're kicking themselves right now because they've lost out on 14 points over the last couple of weeks. But maybe you still feel that it was a smart move overall. I'm curious to know, like, what happened here? Did we miss something about Jonathan Taves? Or do you still think he's a guy that shouldn't be expected to get more than... uh, 60 point pace and remember he's right now on a 160 point pace over the last couple of weeks wow if he can keep that up the rest of the
1: season you are really set if you have him and kicking yourself if you don't uh you said what did we miss like how did we not see it coming i don't know like his numbers over the past two years had been pretty steady and reliable pointing to him as a 55 maybe 60 point guy and not much changed going into this season we know he started off pretty cool Colder than he should have been and now he's hotter than I think he should be. But if you look like it's not just a recent thing. It's not just the last week or well the last week certainly helps him get up to 32 points over his last 30 games with seven power play points. And what's very nice is 88 shots to go with that. We should give him credit for his increased shot rates this year. He's taking more shot attempts for 60 minutes this year than at any point. Over the last four seasons, he's got a beastly 25 shots over his last seven games and a lot of four or five-shot efforts in there, even a couple seven-shot games. I'll be honest, if I were looking at his numbers blind, not knowing it's Jonathan Taves that I'm looking at, I would be open to suggesting that he could keep up his current near 70-point pace. But knowing what I know about Jonathan Taves, I still reflexively expect him to really level off to like 55, 60-point pace again. But maybe I'll put him on the higher End of that now because I don't think Panic and Schmaltz are two guys who can really keep things going with Taves for so long. Like we talked about in Nisimov last year, he has Panarin and Kane. Taves has Taves. And I guess you know, you hope there's some scoring upside with Panic and Schmaltz. And by the way, it was a real missed opportunity not just because Schmaltz continued to have a good week and has another point tonight, Elon, that we didn't bring him up on the show last week, but it's just so much fun to say Schmaltz. We missed a chance to say it more often, so I'll take advantage of it now. Schmaltz. I like him a little more than I do Panic, but I think he may not be as good as some of the more depth options on the Blackhawks. He has just 16 points in 42 games, and I think he'll go as far as taste takes him. Uh, he really hasn't been one of the most offensive guys on the Blackhawks. Like if you rate their forward core, he's towards the bottom in a lot of measures. And if you look at guys like Ryan Hartman and Vinny Hinostroza, they're actually looking better going by their shot and point scoring rates at even strength on the season. And Panic, I see, is kind of like a Komarov. Started off the year hot, then he cooled, now he's hot again. I kind of expect the pattern to repeat itself, but he can offer some peripheral value along the way. Even if he starts going cold and your league counts hits, you can take advantage of getting those.
0: Yeah, like it's hard to expect Panic and Schmaltz to keep this up. And Taves has had a number of different linemates throughout the year. Like Marion Hosa was normally playing with Jonathan Taves, and he's been in the bottom six. Who knows if, you know, things slow down? Maybe Hosa gets back up there. But for now, I mean, if Panic and Schmaltz are both available for you in free agency, you have to take a look at them at least while they're rolling. Like, like I said, like over a point per game over the past couple of weeks. And they're playing with one of the hottest guys in the league in Jonathan Taves. They probably shouldn't be free agents for you. I'd actually take Panic over Schmaltz just because he's actually been the one also on the top power play actually i saw that seabrook was bumped in the last game and they were going four forwards and duncan keith and panic was there instead of seabrook so if you could get him while he, that's lasting i would definitely want him plus he gives you some hits and then shamal is also good playing on this good line top line hey on chicago maybe we'll see if something changes at the trade deadline But yeah, two interesting guys. Normally, it's hard to find such high producers that were such nobodies all season long, so late in the season. So here's your chance, potentially, and you could ride them out maybe for the first week or two of your fantasy playoffs. Okay, for the next hot streak, I want to go to Nashville. Let's talk about how we're finally seeing some offense out of their top D-men in Roman Yossi and P.K. Subban. Going into today, top power play, Roman Yossi. He scored two goals yesterday versus Washington, had two assists the game before versus Colorado. He's riding a four-game point streak, and he has 12 points in his last 10 games. He also has 35 shots in that span and 20 blocks. Like I said, that was actually not included today because Nashville played today against Edmonton. They won 5-4. I'm checking right now. Roman Yossi, two assists. There you go. That's three straight games of two points for Roman Yossi. So he is officially... On fire, doing so well. He slumped a bit earlier in the year, but is now up to 34 points in 52 games. So make that 36 points in 53 games. so like around a 55 point pace, which is fantastic for a defenseman, especially one that can give you some blocks, like around two blocks a game, nothing to sneeze at. I feel like we can expect at least a 55 point pace like this moving forward for Roman Yosi. If he's on the top power play with all these other Nashville guys who are heating up, you know, we're going to get to arvinson and Forsberg. I feel like 55 point pace is like his floor moving forward and upside for maybe hitting 60. Brian, do you concur? I concur. <laughs> okay. And then we pick PK Subban, who has one goal and nine assists for 10 points in his last eight games. And let's update that for today. Two assists today. So yeah, they're keep rolling. It's fantastic. Especially for a guy like Subban who was injured and then wasn't doing much finally, you know, he's producing and making it worth the high traffic that a lot of people spent on him. He now has 30 points in 46 games, which is like a 52-53 point pace. I'd be curious to know also what point pace you expect for P.K. Subban moving forward, like better or worse than Roman Yozi? Like who would you actually prefer between the two of them in a keeper league? Let's say if the league counts shots and blocks.
1: So my knee jerk, my gut is to say Subban immediately, but then I take a look and I'm not so sure. Subban's actually a year older than Roman Yozi, So if you're looking for youth. I mean, there's marginally less with Subban. I also want to like Subban more for shots and points, but Roman Yossi is keeping up with points and he's really out shooting him. So I think I'm actually going to go with Roman Yossi between the two. I still think Subban has the higher upside. Like if one of them is going to get 60 or more points in a season, it's going to be PK Subban. But until Subban's running the top power play, I can't say I like him more than Yossi.
0: Yeah, I think that's fair. And also, it doesn't seem like that's going to happen. Like, all season long, Subban hasn't been on the top power play. And now things are finally clicking, so they're not going to change it now. Who knows? Now that I said this, maybe things will swap in a little while, and the Yozzi owners will be mad at me. Okay, but since we're on National one player... I'm sure has been involved in many of these defenseman points is Philip Forsberg. He had a goal and two assists versus Washington yesterday. And then two straight hat tricks for his two games before that versus Colorado and Calgary. So he is just insane. Three straight three-point games. What? And and actually that's not including today, only a goal today. So philip forsberg clearly slowing down with only a goal like he's just on such an amazing pace remember when people were worried about him earlier in the year like he was on a cold streak, and people were talking about dropping him i'm pretty sure we said not to and i'm really glad we did that would have been a horrible move almost as bad as jade here in the chat room having dropped austin matthews earlier in the year but yet even with this run he's only up to 46 points in 62 games for like a 60 point pace this year i think he's showing he's better than that at this point right brian like i would be surprised to see philip forsberg and closer to 70 points than 60 even with all those pointless games he had early on like I'm not even talking pace at this point I could see Philip Forsberg get 70 points this year which would mean close to a point per game pace moving forward am I crazy you are not crazy we had Philip Forsberg as a guy with near
1: certainty for 65 points with upside for maybe five more and that would get you to what you're saying right now course seven goals on his last 11 shots they have put him back on track for a second consecutive 30 goal season and if you're thinking well that's unsustainable there's no way you can find other places in his game this year that he can grow he has only seven power play points to date Nashville is scoring power play goals at essentially the same rate as they were last season when they scored 51 on the whole year and Forsberg finished that year with 23 power play points so seven power play points he's off pace even though Nashville's scoring just as many So I think he can still pick up a few more power play points. Like he's still on that top unit. His IPP is down a bit. So again, if you find his sudden scoring surge distasteful because it's not being accompanied by enough shots and it came a little too out of the blue for you, don't because he's missing out in other places too. I still think he remains in near certainty for 65 points with upside of 70.
0: Yeah, Philip Forsberg, so good. And then I feel like we can't mention Nashville and not talk about Victor Arvidsson, who just keeps producing. He's up to 43 points in 59 games. And I keep having to remind myself that I wrote this before today's game. I really should have updated this. Arvidsson, a goal today. So he's rolling as well. I guess when Nashville scores five goals, you'd expect everyone to get it on at least one. So clearly I feel like Arvidsson, he's a must add if he's somehow still available in your league. We've been talking about him all year. I think there's no doubt at this point, he's going to be valuable to you going into your playoffs. You need to add him. I don't even know if there's anything else to say about him.
1: No, except that he's scoring goals at like the same rate as Philip Forsberg. He just didn't do it with two so flashy hat tricks. He has 10 goals and 8 assists for 18 points in his last 17 games, 53 shots, and has been essentially a point-for-game player over the whole year, save for a 10-game cold snap that began just before Hanukkah.
0: Yeah, actually, I haven't mentioned this yet, but Brian, we're going to be putting a bonus item at the end of this episode one of our patrons dave recorded his own podcast and we decided it's the first episode it's a podcast about who you need to stream for a specific week so he's only looking at the next week and talking about who you can add and drop for your team it's pretty good i had a lot of fun listening to it i'm bringing it up now because he has some very interesting advice about arvidson and forsberg so you'll know what i'm talking about when you get there okay but i want to go to the rangers now a guy who's maybe not as exciting but still finally producing again brady shea Kind of just like the beginning of the year at this point. Before today, he had 12 points in his last 16 games. Taking two shots on goal also most games as opposed to only around the one or zero he had when his hot streak was going. I remember thinking, yeah, you could add Shea, but you're not going to get anything aside from some assists. But at least now he's getting assists and an okay amount of shots. Enough to like not really hurt you in that category if you're like wasting a roster spot on him. Curious to know if you think he's worth adding at this point. He's also getting some second unit power play time, which is not bad considering like Rick Nash and JT Miller and Kevin Hayes are on that second power play unit. Is this production from Brady Shea sustainable or fleeting?
1: I'm going to go with fleeting. You mentioned that he has been seeing some power play time, but only one of these 12 points in this run came on the power play. So not making the most of that time and you can see he's gotten an uptick in on ice shooting percentage in this run just like during his first run that we covered earlier in this year so that's why i'm saying fleeting but i'm also good with getting him on your roster while the getting is good
0: next i wanted to mention vladislav nemestnikov we're going down in name value a little bit as the show goes on but don't worry, we'll end with some big names in the cold streak section but nemestnikov he's doing it again goals in each of his last three games I'm just telling you this to tell you that I'm not buying in this time. We brought him up too many times before. He goes on a hot streak. We mentioned him on the show. Then he does nothing. And anyone who picked him up because of us just hates us a little bit more. Especially now that even though he's on this streak in his last game, he was playing with Point and Killorn and he wasn't on the top power play. So it's not even like Nemesnikov is on a Kucherov line like he was before when we were recommending him. So forget about him. Let someone else pick him up. One guy who's at least intriguing me a little bit on Tampa, though, is defenseman Jake Dotchin. He's a guy I'd never heard of before, but he's seeing over 50% of the power play time in each of the last four games. Also over 20 minutes of regular ice time in his last three games. So out of nowhere, he's becoming a pretty significant player on the team. He's played only 13 games overall on the season and only has three assists. But do you see any upside for more, given his increased role? And I think especially if your league counts hits, you have to consider adding him because he has 36 hits in 13 games. Like He's a very solid bet for at least two or three hits every game. He's had a couple of games where he's even higher than that. So Brian, why don't you give a quick scouting report on Jake Dutchen, defenseman of the Tampa Bay Lightning?
1: Yeah, I think if you're in a hits league, he's worth looking at. I think otherwise not so much. Anton Strauman is usually the guy who gets secondary power play time in Tampa, but not at the moment. You wonder if the Bolts are looking to bolster their power play to see what their in-house options are like. The word going around earlier this week was that they had a sign and trade deal set up for Shattenkirk, but Shattenkirk was not into the idea. I mean, it was seven years, $6 million per year, and maybe he feels like he can fetch more on the open market. I can't blame him for wanting to test it, but we did just see, going back to Tampa, we saw Victor Hedman goes 16 games without a power play point from the end of December all the way into the start of February. I wonder if that played a part in Tampa, both looking at Shattenkirk and now maybe giving Dochin a try. I'm just trying to connect some dots here, though. Maybe I'm letting my imagination run wild a little bit because uh, Dachin has never really shown the pedigree of a high end power play quarterback. He seems to be a guy who could do a half decent job of it, but it doesn't seem like it's something that would be his forte.
0: Okay, just another name that we'll throw out there. At least, if nothing else, you learn about a new player in the NHL, even if you don't plan on picking him up. And I wanted to end the hot streak section by mentioning Brian's favorite goalie, Eddie Lack, got only his second start since returning from injury on Friday, and he shut out the Ottawa Senators, 3-0. 34 saves, a really good game for Eddie Lack. Believe it or not, he didn't have as good of a result today. He got the second start in a row, which looked very nice versus Calgary, but it was a 3-1 loss. He only made 21 saves, so an 875 save percentage. That's more Eddie Lack-like. That's the Eddie Lack that we've been seeing all throughout the season in the times he's played, less than 900 save percentage. Anyway, worth mentioning, Cam Ward. Like, There's a reason why Eddie Lack got two straight games. It's not only because he got a shutout. It's also because Cam Ward has an 887 save percentage over the past two months. That's 21 games. So I still think it's a nice opportunity for Lack to step up and at least get more games. And maybe Cam Ward doesn't need to play like 10 games in a row if they have a backup goalie who can get a shutout on occasion. Is it time for people that are in deep leagues to potentially add Eddie Lack, Brian? I feel like I ask you this every once in a while just because you love him so much.
1: Yeah, you say he's my favorite goalie. And I think he was my favorite option coming into the season as a goalie you could pick up late and get value out of. That hasn't happened. And I'm at the point where I've given up On Eddie Lack as a member of the Carolina Hurricanes for the most part now I do like a lot of what he tweets he's a funny guy seems to have a good personality and he was great on the Canucks and I feel like he might be great on his next team but I'm really hesitant to go off of one good start even as someone who I really want to succeed and I backed a lot so you know it'd look really good on me if he suddenly did start playing well yeah I'm not rushing to pick him up myself uh, that said it is hard to do worse than cam ward has been over the last while so of course as always i think the hurricane should keep giving him a run until i don't know i feel like cam ward has just been kneecapping every goalie who's challenged for the number one spot for the last 10 years it's the only way to explain it he's like cutting holes in their equipment secretly or putting some performance
0: Detri- detriment
1: in their pre-game meal something like that eddie lack is better than this but i don't know if he can be better than this with carolina
0: Okay, well, Brian, I mean, you, you did text me after that shutout being like, hey, how about that Eddie Lack? So I, I put him down for you. I'm still going to refer to him. You did. check. I check, did not. Check our Google Hangout conversation. Search for Eddie Lack. You have a short memory, I guess. I'm still going <laughs> to refer to him as Brian's favorite goalie, Eddie Lack. I think from here on out for the rest of my life. I hope that's okay with you. Let's go to cold streaks now. Claude Giroux. Claude Giroux gotta bring him up it's sad but we have to he only has 43 points in 61 games this year which is a 58 point pace i think that many people would have taken the over if you made a 60 point over under going into the season he only has two assists in his last nine games is this just like a philly thing and maybe once philly bounces back if they can even like He'll be fine. Or is there something wrong with Claude Giroux? Like once you look into his numbers, is this a guy that's going to be able to go back to being the at least 70 point guy, closer to point per game guy? Or do you think maybe 60 point Claude Giroux is the new existing Claude Giroux?
1: It is a bit of a Philly thing. And you know, I've been a Giroux fan for a long time. So of course I'm going to go to bat for him. His 10 game rolling, even strength on ice shooting percentage has been at 3% for like a month now. And we can expect it, or we should expect it to be able to be closer, like somewhere around 7 or 8%. It's at 3%. And somebody like Brady Shea, who's doing really well, it's up at like 11 or 12%. So 3% is incredibly low. But Giroux is a guy who has suffered through a sub-7% on ice shooting percentage in Philadelphia for three years now. So it's not like we can even expect a huge regression bounce back from three to nine or something. It's going to be three to seven, but it is still worth noting that he and his line mates have been especially terrible at converting shots to goals recently. In fact, his output of 140 points in the last two seasons goes from, okay, I'll take it to kind of impressive when you see that he ranks 135th out of 143 forwards in even strength on ice shooting percentage since the start of the 2014 15 season. And that's amongst all Fords who've played at least 200 games. If you didn't catch all that, what I'm saying is Claude Giroux spit up a lot of points with a very low on ice shooting percentage. His problems do go beyond just that, though. I see declining shot rates, declining shot attempt rates, low individual shooting percentage, low IPP. The last two of those should even out with regression, but the declining shots and shot attempts are a little concerning as Giroud does begin navigating the downward part of the aging curve that he has arrived at as a 29-year-old. I think something's kind of broken in Philadelphia, and I hope it'll be fixed in the offseason, if not sooner. And if you ask me in the off season, I'll tell you he still is one of my candidates for a bounce back. He just turned 29 a month ago. So while age may be somewhat at play, I don't think it accounts for this entire drop-off. And I also don't think that peak 29- or 30-year-old Claude Giroud is this bad. I think he can be better. And so I'm already looking to next season. Good time to grab him low if you're in a keeper league.
0: Okay, one-year league next year. You're drafting for the cupful, and you have the option to either have Giroux or Austin Matthews. Who do you take?
1: If the Flyers change their coach, I'll still go Austin Matthews, but it'll be a tougher decision for me. If they go into next season with everything mostly the same behind the bench, uh, I would definitely take Austin Matthews. If they change, I'll still take
0: Austin Matthews. (laughs) Okay, what a twist. I thought you were going to say Giroud there. Okay, speaking of guys on maybe the wrong side of the aging curve, you posted something kind of distressing on our Facebook group today. And I had to bring it up. You were saying that maybe Alex Ovechkin is starting to slow down. And you mentioned how he's had some zero shot games lately. Brian, we have him in our joint league as our top keeper. Should we be starting to be thinking of selling Alex Ovechkin while we still can for the high price? Like, what is all this? Like, is he actually slowing down or is this just like a little bit of a cold streak recently? Like, come on, it's Alex Ovechkin. Up until a couple of weeks ago, you only needed one hand
1: and a thumb to count how many times Ovechkin had gone an entire game without registering a shot on goal over the course of his career. That's been a huge part of his fantasy value. You're going to need more for both hands. Now, after the last couple of weeks, you can still count all the games in which he's had zero shots on both hands, But yeah, you're going to need more fingers. He's now gone shotless three times in the last seven games, which is crazy. Before this run, it had been nearly four years since the last time he had had a zero shot game. And it's kind of saddening to see that his shot rates this year have finally fallen down to a human level after they've been superhuman for really his entire career. The rest of the league has closed the gap on him over the last two years for shot attempt rates. But he still led the league in shot attempts for all but one of those last nine seasons. The one time he didn't, he was just a smidge behind Max Pacioretty. This year, he's its fourth in the league. Austin Matthews is one of the guys who's ahead of him in even strength. That's still great, fourth in the league in shot attempts. But it's not great relative to what we expect from Alex Ovechkin. And some might say, you know, the whole team is shooting less. So maybe he's shooting less. That's not true. He's accounting personally for less of his lines, total shots less of his team's total shots. And it's part of a trend too. This isn't just a sudden drop this year. After holding perfectly steady for the last few, you can see now that there is a steady decline coming. And I have to thank uh, Peter Hassett over at RussianMachineNeverBreaks.com for contributing a lot of the thoughts in this little write-up. He had an article that he just posted this morning called Alex Ovechkin Got Old. And it is a sad truth. It sucks. I don't know what to say. Age is the most likely explanation for what's happening to Ovechkin. It's not like he's having an off year or anything. This is just what happens when you have a superstar turning 31 who can still really run over most of the league in shot attempts, but not by the same margin that we saw him exceed the rest of the league by at his peak. So I guess if you have him in a keeper league, it's time to start thinking about selling. He'll still have elite shot attempt rates and shot on goal rates, which of course is more important for your own fantasy league, but he won't be giving you the same unfair advantage in all likelihood that he has in the last, well, over his entire career.
0: Sad. And keeping on this sad note of older players not doing well, let's end the show by talking about Andrzej Kopitar, who's slumping again. Uh, He had two assists yesterday versus Anaheim, but I'm not going to give him too much credit because Bernier wasn't Nets. But before that, he only had one assist in eight games. We were used to Kopitar having a slow start to the year, but usually for the past couple of years, once he got hot, he stayed hot and he slayed the whole rest of the season. This year's looking like it might be different. We've gotten so many questions on Twitter and in our patron-only Facebook group asking about dropping Kopitar for guys like Galchenyuk or Tyler Johnson or Derek Stepan. And I feel like it's time to start considering moves like this. I feel like he's maybe a little, like, I still actually like him better than those three, but I think it's very close. I'd be curious to know what you think. Last game, the LA lines were Carter, Pearson, and Toffoli, and then Kopitar with Dustin Brown and a guy named Adrian Kempe. So it's like, Kopitar is getting the worst line mates. Like I'm sure Jeff Carter is very happy to have Toffoli and Pearson with him and not Brown and Kempe. Marion Gabrick was scratched, by the way. And side note, he's a total snoozer. We were excited about him playing with Kopitar, but now he can't even get into the lineup. So it's kind of a mess right now for that Kopitar line and for Andre Kopitar. Obviously, he has the upside to bounce back. He is Andre Kopitar. But like if you're comparing him to these guys, if you're in a league shallow enough that you have free agents like Galchenyuk, Tyler Johnson, and Derek Stepan, is it time to consider making a move if he keeps snoozing?
1: Yeah, the thing with Kopitar is that there's no indication in the numbers that of what he can control that this year is any different from the past two. Shot attempts, scoring chances, they've all been pretty darn consistent with what we're used to seeing from him in his successful years. And like I looked at shot distance too to try and see if something's up with that. He's actually taking shots from in closer this year than he has in at least the past three seasons. I still think he can turn it around, but I agree he's running out of room. If you compare him to that group... Elon, like, they've all had their share of cold stretches, too. I think Tyler Johnson has been fairly consistent for the last little while, though. That's the swap I would consider making. If you've had Kopitar all season long, I feel like you're stuck with him now. Stick it out. I think my advice to anyone who doesn't have him would be to stop trying to buy low. Even though I do believe he can come back, like, you'll be paying an unfair price for the risk that you might be taking on.
0: Okay, since I hate to end the show on such a down note, let's talk about the other side of the coin. Tanner Pearson... Had three assists yesterday, and he's up to 11 points in his last seven games. And he's the guy that's been on the top power play with Carter, Kopitar, Dowdy, and Muzzin. Not tyler toffoli surprisingly so i feel like if tanner pearson's still a creation for you it's time to buy on him i still remember him as like one of the early keeping carlson guys who we did really well and we were saying no he's not going to keep it up he has a high shooting percentage and we looked really smart now i feel like his production is more sustainable it's obviously nice that he's on a line with jeff carter who's just having such an amazing season like we've talked about i feel like maybe i would even drop like tyler toffoli for tanner pearson right now if i had the option i wonder if that's a little too crazy
1: it's too crazy i would not do that i would prefer Taffoli to Pearson. I prefer Kopitar to Pearson. I prefer, well, all the kings we've mentioned to Pearson.
0: Okay. Well, I mean, yeah, I still prefer Kopitar to Pearson, but to Foley, he had two goals versus Anaheim yesterday, but again, Bernier factor. And before that, only four goals and zero assists in 10 games since returning from injury. Or no, that's actually including that. So that's only two goals in nine games before that good game yesterday. To Foley has 24 points in 42 games overall on the year, which is a 47 point pace. Compare that to Tanner Pearson, who's riding a 51 point pace right now, 37 points, in 59 games. Plus, with him being on the top power play, to me, all signs are pointing to wanting Pearson over to Foley. But I guess you have a good reason for wanting to Foley. So you are the guy that's usually right.
1: That's how I introduce myself at parties. I'm Brian, the <laughs> guy who is usually right. Uh, Elon, before you close out the show, uh, there's a few guys that I wanted to talk about that I got bumped because of all the trade talks. So just very, very quickly, Travis Zajac, if you're looking for a center to add, he plays four games this week and he's on a roll, three goals, six assists for nine points in his last nine games. So he is back doing well. Again, you know, he had a good run earlier this season too. And then if you're looking for shots, Philip DiGiuseppe over in Carolina, who I always make fun of you when you bring him up, Elon. So I don't know if you want to take this opportunity to give it back to me, but he has 17 shots over his last four games. Some huge outings. He's also getting some power play time. Carolina has a good schedule this week. So perhaps he'll fit on your roster. And a couple other shot takers of note, Arturi Lekkinen in Montreal, he had none in his most recent game, but before that he had a couple of big outings and actually not so much a shot taker, but just someone you might want to add later on this week, Matthew Perot. I mean, it's a really busy night in the NHL on Tuesday. So he plays on Tuesday. If you have an open spot in your roster, I doubt it. But if you want to add him for the back-to-back that the Jets have later in the week, he could still be playing with Scheifele and Liney on that top line. I guess we'll see because the Jets haven't played in a little while, He's a great option who is likely available in your league to add if your team needs a little boost. And then, Elon, this name is ridiculous. I'm just going to say it because it even made to my list. Alex Burrows is doing, like, semi-relevant things. Not relevant things, just semi-relevant things. He's playing with Bo Horvat, which might be the reason why.
0: Yeah, just hopefully he doesn't catch the mumps And then that will be okay. Or at least maybe that explains why he's playing on a good line because all the other players are injured. But sure, good name, all fun names. I like Phil DiGiuseppe. He's currently on a line I'm seeing with Victor Rask and Derek Ryan. So he's taking the Jeff Skinner spot from earlier in the year. And I guess he's filling the Jeff Skinner role of taking a ton of shots. So good for him. And also Brian, great segue talking about all the schedules for next week, because we've got a bonus, I guess, episode of a podcast that we're going to put at the end of this one. Like I said before, all about next week's schedule. We're throwing it out there because Dave, one of our patrons, really cool guy, and he's starting something new. We thought we'd share it with all of you. It's a new podcast. He calls it Stream Scheme, but the name might change. But for now, that's the name, I guess. And I think you're going to like it. So we're going to put that right at the end of the outro music. But before we get to that, I want to thank you all for listening to the show proper. If you like the show, feel free to tweet at us. We'd love to hear your feedback. You can also give us a five-star review on iTunes. If you want to become a patron of Keeping Carlson, I'm going to get right to that. Now is the perfect time to do so because the trade deadline is this week and we're doing a patron cast Wednesday night. And I'm sure that's all we're going to be talking about. So if you want to get our early takes about all the trades that happen over the next couple of days, you need to be a patron of Keeping Carlson. We're going to be doing a whole show answering questions from the patrons. I'm sure a lot of them will be about all the trades that happen. So if you're interested in anything like that, and also of course, joining our patron only Facebook group, check out keepingcarlson.com slash patron for all the information there. Anilam, before we get to the credits, I'm also going to throw out a plug for DobberProspects.com.
1: You might be wondering who these prospects are that are changing hands around the trade deadline. Like this Eric Trunek character that is heading to Tampa in return for Ben Bishop. Uh, he has a C- fantasy rating over at Dauber prospects. You'll find that maybe he's a second-pairing D-man, uh, but he's a big guy who's best known for his defensive work. Not quite his offensive capabilities, so nobody to get too excited about it in case you were thinking about it. But on the whole... Elon, why am I mentioning this now? I think I just felt like it. I was going to mention them in the credits,
0: but I wanted to mention why. Okay, and with that, let's cue the outro music. And Brian, why don't you go ahead and read us the credits. All right, this episode of the
1: Kevin Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast was presented by Dauber Hockey and supported by our amazing patrons. It was researched with help from Dauber Hockey, Dauber Prospects, Frozen Pool, Corsica, Hockey Analysis, Hockey Reference, Hockey Database, Hockey viz, Elite Prospects, roto World, and Fantrax.
0: Great job, Brian. Hope you enjoy episode one of Stream Scheme. Feel free to tweet at us with your feedback and let us know if you think we should do this again. And we look forward to doing another regular episode of Keeping Carlson next week. Join us live, keepingcarlson.com slash live, 8 p.m. Sunday nights.
1: Until then, keep on keeping Carlson.
2: This is your inaugural weekly ad streamer add-on podcast. I'm going to be rip roaring through all the teams telling you who I think you can add, who you can drop, and most importantly, who you'll be living the stream with this week. I'm not going to deep dive into the numbers. You can listen to the main cast with your boys Brian and Elon for that is just to give you a heads up on who I think you should be looking at this upcoming week who might be flying under the radar. I'll be trying to get these out on a Saturday because if you're in a league with Sharks like me, I'm allowed to add by Saturday so you can add on Sunday and I won't be able to add these guys. So without further ado, you need to know which guys you can get rid of before you can add guys. So let's see what guys you can get rid of this week. First off, there's only two teams that only have two games this week. First one, the ducks. The most new duck, Eves. You can get rid of him. You don't know where he's gonna end up. You don't know where he's gonna be. If he's on your roster because he was killing it in Dallas, cut him. I don't care where he's at. If he's in, if you're in a 14 team league, I guess you can keep him, but I wouldn't recommend it unless you're super deep and there's really nothing else on the wire there. Caligiano. I don't know. Is that how you say his name? Clig Caligiano Uh, Get rid of them. Cross the board. Uh, Ricard, Raquel, like the guy I on the cast, um, I think it's pretty safe to get rid of. If you're in a 14-team league, I wouldn't recommend that. 10 and 12-teamers, I'd say you can safely get rid of them. In a 4 teamer I'd probably hang tight. Hang on to Kessler unless you're in a 10-teamer where the waiver options aren't necessarily that great. Uh, But yeah, that's about all that's going on with the Ducks, with the Oilers. Ryan Nugent-Hopkins... RNH, I don't care how many shots he has, he's a half point per game player. Same goes with Eberly and Maroon, especially if you're in a playoff spot I'd say you can probably get rid of him. Sekera. We know he's a favorite player of mine. The combo of him not being on the top power play and a lack of games this week means you can most likely pick him up later. So I'd say you can get rid of him for now. Get rid of Lucic. You still have him. <laughs> I got rid of him uh, weeks ago in my 14 teamer, and I have no regrets. Uh, so I could, I'd say you could probably get rid of all those guys unless you're McJesus. Um, not a whole lot of Oilers that you're hanging on to. Uh, moving on to the teams that have uh, three games this week, in alphabetical order. We're starting out with Boston Bruins. I played the dreaded Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday lineup this week. Never good. Obviously, you're not going to be moving uh, Bergeron, Pasta, Marche, and a I would hold on to Krejci everywhere except unless you're in a shallow 10-teamer, get rid of the rest of them. You gotta rip the Band-Aid with Bacchus and Spooner. If you're still holding on to Char for whatever reason, name value, not what he used to be, get rid of him. If you had Vetrano, congrats on riding his short run, but he's not gonna do anything this week. I'm telling you, he might get an assist, but that's about it. He's not on his top power play. He's on a third line. You get shots but that's about it and on a three game Mainstay with Tuesday Thursday Saturday it's just not gonna cut it moving on to the flames uh hang on to ch- to Chuck is that how you say it? to Chuck I'll say hang on to Chuck everywhere um, unless a 10 teamer but even then I'd venture to pick him up everywhere in a 12 and 14 teamer he's just he's got the pedigree he's got the skill uh he just always seems to be around the net and picking up those points every time i see his see his updates he's always always getting an assist <laughs> so I, I don't know i just really like him i'd pick him up as long as you're not in a shallow 10 teamer i'd hang on to backland in a 14 teamer you probably drop him in a 12 or 10 teamer and then you can probably drop the rest this week i drop for the versity brower blackhawks uh, I'd actually pick up Panic everywhere except a 10-teamer. Ride him until he cools off. I don't think it's going to be this week. Uh, I think he's, even though he's only got three games, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he gets three points this week. If you have Ansem off in a 10-teamer, I'd probably get rid of him. But otherwise, I'd hang on tight to him in a 12 or 14-teamer. And yeah, across the board, Gerrida He's a backstabber. Can't trust him. He's going to backstab your fantasy hockey team as you're trying to get into the playoffs. Dallas got the dreaded Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday lineup. Not great. They got rid of Reeves, and they're trying to, you know, they're officially in tank mode right now. I'd probably hang on to Spezza and Sharp for those reasons, because they might end up on a great spot on a competitor. But other than that, you know, I dropped Hoodler. He's not going back to Calgary. Detroit. Detroit. Hopefully you can find a partner for Zetterberg if you're unfortunate enough to own any Red Wings. I guess if you have Vanek, hold on to him and say your prayers to the fantasy hockey gods that holding on to him this week is worth it. Maybe he'll end up in a great spot. But everyone else can see you later this week. Florida Panthers also have the dreaded Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday lineup. Barkov is a gift to the fantasy gods, and don't you dare trade them. Please, please don't trade him. He's so good. Unless you have a shot fetch, get rid of Ekblad. Get rid of Yager. The mullet is not worth the roster spot. Trocek and Marsha, I'd say get rid of them in 10 and 12 teamers. Hang tight and maybe 14 teamers and beyond. And in the end, I guess you can hold on to them and open 14 teamers and beyond. Nashville Predators also played a dreaded Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday lineup. I mean, I'll say it. I like Arvidsson better than Forsberg, so... Don't touch him in ten teamers, regardless of what the name value might say. Don't drop uh well okay, in a ten teamer, I would drop Neil, but hang on to him in a twelve and fourteen teamer, I think he'll bounce back. I don't like Ryjo, I don't have him in any leagues. I don't have any problem with you telling him to get rid of him across the board. I'm just not a fan. Maybe in a fourteen teamer, obviously, okay. If you're gonna yank my chain like that, go ahead. Get rid of Craig Smith and Mike Fisher for whatever reason that you still are hanging on to them in your 16 or 20-team league. Islanders, they only play three, but they also play on Wednesday and Sunday, so not quite as bad as the other three-team plays this week. I would still hang on to Boychuck unless you're in a 10-teamer or a 12-teamer. That doesn't count blocks. For the record, if your league doesn't count blocks, you're in a clown league. Hang on to Anders Lee everywhere but 10-teamers. One of, my, one of my favorite players. Also hang on the Bailey and Letty and 12 and 14 teamers, but everyone else you can pretty much get rid of. Rangers also play the dreaded Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday lineup and also against Hopi and Price potentially, so yikes. So pretty much as bad as a two-team play essentially. You're going to be holding on to JT regardless and Zoom. can Stepan, and anything larger than that uh, you can get rid of Kreider and Hayes and 12 but hang on and a 14 probably a Rick Nash uh, try to trade them if you can otherwise you can probably kick them to the curb and anything larger than a 10 Grabner more like Trashner unless you can trade them to a corresponding trash owner and Vessi god I hope you trade this this Vissi Vessi I liked him better when I thought his name was Vessie. Once I learned his name was Vissie, he kind of just, just sucked. Ottawa, uh, they play three games this week, two of them being on Thursday and Saturday. Just doesn't seem like a good week for him. You're still going to be hanging on to Stone and Hoffman, obviously, even in the 10-teamers. Turris, tourists you can probably ditch him in a 10-teamer, but you're going to be hanging on to him in a 12- and a 14-teamer. Philadelphia... Also as the dreaded Tuesday-Thursday-Saturday lineup, you're not going to touch any of the top guys in any of the formats. Maybe Shen in a 10, yes I rhymed, but other than that you're good. If you stuck with Ghost this far, you can't bail now. Provorov gives you enough preps that if you're hanging tight onto him, even in a 14 team where you gotta hang on to him. Anyone else, you can show the door. San Jose only plays three times this week, so outside of Burns and Prevelski, there's going to be a bunch of question marks. In a 10-teamer, I think you can drop essentially anyone else. Um, in a 12-teamer, you're going to be holding on to Couture, but that's essentially about it. In a 4-teamer, you're going to be holding on to Thornton by a frigging thread, only because he gets those assists and special teams points. Trust me, I feel your pain. I have him in a 4-teamer. And oh my freaking goodness, I wanna cut him because he shoots maybe a shot a game and it just eats my soul. But you gotta hold on to him for those assists and special team points. But anyone else, you can get rid of them. St. Louis. Uh, they got a three-game week, but not sneakily as bad as they've got the Tuesday, Friday, Sunday matchup. Other than the Terra Sank show and their three top D, I am not too concerned with anyone else in their lineup, unless you want to pick up a skater for that Friday to Sunday schedule, and I want to pick them up until Friday. Steen and you are going to keep up until the 12, but barely. Uh, everyone else can meet the wire. Toronto, the most entertaining team in the league, faces a Tuesday, Thursday, Friday schedule this week, so not very great. Kadri is still available. Kadri, Kadri, I don't know. Um, pick him up regardless. The other names are obvious. You're going to maintain. I'd say you can ditch said everywhere. Hang on to Bozak and a 14-teamer and everyone else you can probably ditch. Hyman is obviously that's someone who's interesting to me because he's got a decent amount of shots but it's hard to get past the 23 points in 61 games. So I'm going to ignore for now until he gets a four-game week matchup. Washington has that dreaded Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday lineup. Oshie's hurt, so you can cut him in a 10 if you don't have an IR spot for him there, but you're hanging on to him in every other aspect. Niskanen is in the same boat where he's expendable in a 10-teamer. In a 12-teamer, you're still going to hang on to him you can't put them in an IR spot, but it's tight. Justin Williams, Marcus Johansson, and everyone else below them. Winnipeg Jets. I'd say you can drop Trubda. If you need shots and blocks this week, I'd say you can pick up someone who has four spots instead, especially if your D is already filled on Tuesday and Saturday because these guys play then. Hang on to Little unless you're in a 10-teamer that has enticing wire options. Uh, But please don't be that guy that adds Lowry. Be better than that. On to the teams that played four games this week. These are where you're going to find your streamers. Not anywhere that has three games on the crappy mainstays or two games. Get out of here. First team this week, Arizona. They play on Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, Sunday. Pretty nice schedule this week for a four-game matchup. You're obviously holding Verbrata everywhere. Even in a 10 teamer, it's worth the hang in there and see if he's going to end up just somewhere awesome. In a 12 or 14er, obviously he's a hold. Not great, but with those shots, he's worth the spot. Add Golagoski because he's got decent perips and I should get the occasional power play spot with Stone out. And you're holding Hansel in 12 and 14ers for the same potential. Not really a streamer at this point, but. If he's still there, pick him up. Buffalo plays four times this week, but the main stays Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday with an extra Sunday game. Uh, so not that great. Outside of Risto and Eichel, there's no must-keepers in a 10-team league. Still probably hang on to Kane and a 10-teamer while he's hot. And probably a Okposo, too, unless that siren song of The Wire is calling your name. I'd say hang on to ROR and Reinhardt and formats unless that same song can't be ignored. I wouldn't pick up any streamers from them since they only have that extra Sunday game. And anyone who has just that extra Sunday game, you can just drop someone else and pick them up for that one day. Carolina, a very desirable Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday, Sunday matchup this week. That is the dream of the stream. You're not dropping any of their skaters this week if you already own them. As far as streamers, you can pick up if you don't already have them. Slab them is a very enticing if you need those extra blocks or can afford the extra D-man on your roster. Stream Linholm or Team Toivo they're still available in those deeper leagues. I know they're unfortunately unavailable in my Tier 2 Cupful League, but that's because we're the best of the best. Maybe except for the top tier there. I'm very partial to Jordan Stahl this week, especially if a roster spot designated for a streamer, he fits right into that. I'm guessing he probably gets at least two points this week on those off days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, with a chance of some of those being special team points and a decent amount of shots. As much as I like their schedule, though, I still can't recommend one of my favorite players, Lee Stempniak, Unless you're maybe in a 16-teamer league or above. Even though the Colorado Avalanche played four times this week, I can't recommend anyone on the roster. If you're holding any of those French players, that might be traded. If you've held on this long, keep holding on. Blue Jackets played four times this week, but on the main days, and plus one on Sunday. So you're going to be hanging on to your mainstays on this roster, but no real streamers from the Blue Jackets. Uh, Sam Gagner is not a streamer, people. Please ignore his season stats. Or maybe, if you can, try to talk to an idiot into believing that Boone Jenner is resurging. Or maybe try and talk to someone like myself, that Jack Johnson will be a great addition to their rosters so that you can name your team Banana Pancakes. But obviously, other than that, I would avoid the Blue Jack. The Los Angeles Kings also have the Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday with an extra game on Monday. Um, I would hold on to Pearson in deeper leagues, probably 14 teamers and up if you're going to be in a tight matchup with shots and special team points. And I can't stress this enough, people. For your streamers and your fringe players, you really have to look at the team you're playing. Do they get shots? Do they get special team points? And you really have to add those players in which the categories that you can push them over the edge. Like, don't get a player for shots if the team already is going to rock you in shots like let them take you in shots and beat them for sure in blocks you know what i mean but regardless hang on to kopitar if you're in a 12 team or 14 teamer and Mazin, yeah you can probably ditch them unless you're hurting for those peripherals in a deep league minnesota has a very nice schedule with monday tuesday thursday sunday so you have to be willing to stick with the streamer all the way through Monday through Sunday to get that make it worth it. Um, you're going to be holding all the fringe players and picking up any that are available this week. In my almost tier the best kakuffle, tier two that is, I will soon be in tier one hopefully, but the top 11 skaters from Minnesota are all taken. So yes, take every skater from Minnesota save Jonas Broden and Eric Holla, but everyone else above them, you're going to want to take them for this upcoming week, especially if this is a week you need to win. In Montreal, not as much. They have four games. They just have the extra Monday game. Regardless of what those pundits, Brian and Elon, say, those jokers, I'm picking up Petri, Petri, however you say his name. He's a primo streamer this week, in my opinion. Uh, I'm expecting above average to great perifs. And call me crazy, but I'm willing to bet at least one point and wouldn't be surprised if he gets two. Can't say as much as Bolu. Uh, Don't really like him too much this week. Placanic, not as much, I guess, as like a last-ditch waiver I had. I would do it, but I definitely got to add Chenyuk if he's still available, of course, say. For the New Jersey Devils, they're playing on Monday, Thursday, Saturday, Sunday, so once again, you're going to have to stick with them all week to make the streamers worth it. If Palmieri's still there, pick them up across the board, 10, 12, 14 teamers. The only really other devil I can recommend for streaming purposes and good conscience is Camilleri and that's probably only in 14 team leagues and up. Jack, if you're desperate for a forward, that's going to get special team points. And I guess Severson, if you're desperate for a defenseman, that's going to get special team points. And that's the best you can hope for for the Devils. For the Pittsburgh Penguins, they are an optimal team with an optimal schedule this week. Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday, Sunday. Oh my God. salivating just thinking about it so anyone on Pittsburgh you're hanging on to them regardless of where they're at and there's no doubt about it if you're looking for a forward that you could also use some blocks for a streamer there's the best of the best available for you Benino 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 and daily is also a fantastic option this week if you could use some shots and also blocks I'll also mark down for at least one and I wouldn't be shocked if you got at least two. And, of course, if Kunis is still available in your league, then you're in a clown league, bro, unless you're in a super shallow 10-team. The Tampa Bay Lightning, just as desirable a schedule this week. Oh, my goodness. Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday. The best schedule you can ask for for a streamer. But you can always drop them after that Friday and pick up another streamer if you have the ads available to you. oh Can't ask for much more. So if you're hanging, you're going to be hanging on to all your lightning all this week and pick up the lightning forwards where you can. Clorn, Plot, philpula, snagging them up. Grab Strauman if you need those perifs. Can't say enough about those lightning this week. And last, and very potentially least, the Vancouver Canucks. Uh, maybe not this week, but yeah, they've got the main days with the Sunday add-on. Not very enticing. Sorry to end it on a little bit of a sour note. We climbed with the Lightning and Pittsburgh, and then came down to the Vancouver Canucks. Uh, I wouldn't recommend adding any of them. I guess if you already at if you already have them, might as well hang on to them they might get the mumps so you might be screwed (laughs) so
1: that's about all I got Uh, keep on living the stream